I insist that you do not tell your friends the little, uh, tiny, horrifying secrets of Psycho after you see it. I would also like to point out that Psycho is most enjoyable when viewed beginning at the beginning and proceeding to the end. We won't allow you to cheat yourself. You must see Psycho from the beginning to end to enjoy it fully. Therefore, do not expect to be admitted into the theater after the start of each performance of the picture. We say no one, and we mean no one, not even the manager's brother, the President of the United States, or the Queen of England. God bless her. Good evening. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Episode three is upon us, and once again, we must thank Brad Haig of Real Nerds Podcast for accommodating this experiment into the Real Nerds feed, as well as on the website. So far, we have had two wonderful conversations, two great conversations regarding the work of Hitchcock, and I do want to thank the last... Uh, episode's guest Aaron Pendergast for helping me break down Rear Window and get to the bottom of Hitchcock's technique, his meticulousness, and we had some humorous notions about the film and how it operates on a current era storytelling level, um, in addition to the technical feats that we now see today. Now that that's out of the way, we're on to today's show, and we're going to plunge right in on a supreme Hitchcock classic. It's a film that we probably shouldn't be discussing until the end of this whole fucking journey. Um, but as I've stated before from episode one and also in the articles, this is an experiment and it operates in a free-flowing nature, so there's no requirement in terms of organization. It's like a Hunter S. Thompson novel. It may not make sense all the time. Um, uh, although I find many different ways to arrange it as much as I can, um, and I would like to rearrange it chronologically if possible to see if that even remotely makes sense. Uh, but in keeping with finding a way to address the current day influence of Hitchcock and how his films influence the films we see today and the cinema going habits is worthy of an early discussion of this particular film, um, specifically in the terms of broken barriers and the revelations that we saw in this film that then changed the game for other filmmakers to spread out and do the work that has influenced us today as well. Um, this is a film that extends beyond just storytelling uh, game-changing into changing the way our movie-going habits function, uh, the modern formation of a genre, and it changes the way we approach characters in numerous and even questionable ways. And it's amazing to think that the film is simply about a motel talked off the main highway and the secrets that dwell within. I, of course, speak of the 1960 masterpiece, Psycho. Here to discuss this with me is a wonderfully creative fellow. He digs deep into the minutia of film anytime I talk to him. And he's also a talented filmmaker uh, who, among other things, is the cinematographer of a wonderful film called Impressions, which you can check out now on Amazon Prime. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Marshall Rosales. 
Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Oh, great. Oh, hoy, hoy. <laughs> That's Mr. Burns. That's the way he did it. Um, Marshall, thank you for coming down. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for having me. This yeah. is quite an honor. So, um, uh, boo prehistory. We knew each other in film school. Same, yes. same as Aaron. Uh, Aaron last week. Um, and uh, from the moment I met you, I I knew you were a cinephile of the highest approach. Like you. I think you and Schulte were two people that I listened to intently in terms of things I should um, examine. Like Schulte's example started early on because I then ended up doing a whole fucking series about Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I'm both grateful for him and then also want to punch him because that got <laughs> annoying after a while. Yeah. Um, uh, again, it, go read those articles. You'll see me dwell into madness. Um, but, uh, but your, your take on it was you always had an appreciation for horror. Um, yes. And just kind of the way it influences not just like our in initial fears upon watching it, but how it extends up beyond that. Um, right. And then, in fact, like when when I when you and I had started rechatting recently, like we were even talking about how Crimson Peak is a very underrated Guillermo del Toro masterpiece. Yes. So you clearly have a an angle on things that is unique. But like any of us, you are a Hitchcock fan. Mm -hmm. Um as I've said before on this show, this is a filmmaker that it's hard to find somebody who doesn't like at least one of his films. Right. So tell me a little bit about how you get into Hitchcock. Um, like how early does it begin for you? Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting because I am, I mean, I have to be uh, fully transparent and I am no Hitchcock scholar. Mm -hmm. I have not seen a ton of Hitchcock. Um, but as a film student, I think that I had, um, a lot of exposure to a lot of Hitchcock's influence in the film and kind of his his rigor as a filmmaker um, and um, and that sort of approach. I think that, I mean, culturally, it's a, it's been really fun to go back and watch Psycho and in in preparation for this because culturally that film is just a part of life's blood mm -hmm. and like and you can go and talk to just about anybody and they understand the shower scene like they they that the the cuts in that sequence are a, a rhythm that everybody sort of knows they know that scream they know that music cue mm -hmm. um and so i think that yeah so i think early on sort of sort of my exposure to hitchcock was probably through a lot of um homage and parody mm -hmm. of him and like cartoons and things like that um i think i probably saw high anxiety before i ever <laughs> saw a hitchcock film <laughs> just through oh, my love wonderful. of Mel Brooks. yeah no i've got a guy scheduled for to talk specifically about high anxiety um he's my writing partner out in new hampshire and it, he he and i are of the opinion that that is the only good Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock didn't make because then everybody else tries to imitate him and it just doesn't work. But high anxiety is a Hitchcock movie. Yes. It just has a different person to calling the shots. Right. Exactly. Um, but yeah. So what do you think? What do you think the first Hitchcock film was that you saw? If you can remember um, it, it was probably North by Northwest. Ooh. Okay. So you're breaking the pattern here. Cause the first two guests, it was the birds and oh, that was mine as well. Gotcha. So yeah. North by Northwest. So you're already, you're already d differentiating from a different side of Hitchcock, which is the more like the thrilling and intense mm -hmm. espionage element. Yeah. And it was, I mean, one thing I, I'm a little ashamed of, but I also find it very humorous is, um, I thought that I had seen psycho 
mm. before I actually had seen it all the way through. I go through that all the time with various different films. Um, just by, you know, just because of how many things are so famous from it and mm-hmm. different aspects of it that were studied in film school and, and, and things like that. Um, but I, I think I knew a lot more about Hitchcock as a filmmaker mm-hmm. in terms of his preparation and um, sort of how he ran a set. Mm-hmm. And how he respected the production and just kind of the way that he would dress on location and, and at set and things like that, that then I actually had a lot of exposure to Hitchcock really until film school, mm-hmm. which is which is wild to me to think about that. So then so then film school comes around and you you don't like you like you stated up front, you didn't dig like super deep, mm-hmm. like but you did dig you dug enough to understand and appreciate certain films within that within that sphere. Yeah, and I think that it was it was really more I think that my even today my understanding of Hitchcock are kind of more his concepts about film. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of how to create suspense, you know, like the the people at a dinner table and the mm-hmm. bomb just blows up versus if you show the bomb underneath first. Like those sorts of ideas of how to create suspense and how to toy with an audience and, and the idea of a MacGuffin and a red herring and these concepts that Hitchcock applied to his plot structures and right. to his film. Um, those are the things that I had more exposure to than even like complete films mm-hmm. themselves. It was just really kind of how his approach to um film as a manipulative storytelling medium which we discussed last week that the technique of hitchcock is it it is a pure and utter form of manipulation on his behalf and pure cinema is the big um concept behind that which is show not tell yeah um which we are taught from the get-go how to do that when we whenever you want to make a film whether you go to film score or not um, the bomb under the table is interesting because I don't know if you remember, but I know there was a class where we talked about the bomb under the table and then had visual representations of it. I don't remember if it was an acting uh, class or whatever, or if it was a directing class, but there was some form of lesson about the bomb under the table. Uh, and then when you read interviews, um, he always has the uh, Hitchcock always has the phrase like the bomb must never go off because in sabotage he let the bomb go off and killed a character that everybody liked. And so <laughs> that's why the bomb would never go off going forward, or at least that's why he suggests that it never go never go off going forward. And there's a bit of that in uh, in Psycho with mm-hmm. uh, going to the police. Yes. I, like, well, it's, I think he said it's dull. Mm-hmm. And so in this movie, they went to the police, and this is what you get. This is why no one likes that scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is it's very, you know, just like. Are you talking about the, the at the very end, or? Um, I believe it's the sheriff. When oh, he goes to when, the, they go, when they go to the sheriff's house late at night, and then they have that. So like, <laughs> Mrs. Bates has been married in Greenlawn Cemetery for, for, for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it's just like pure exposition. <laughs> yeah. And, and he got some kind of kickback for it. And he's just like, well, everyone's always wondering why characters don't go to the police. Yeah. This is why, because it's dull. <laughs> well, we will talk about the exposition too, because the final scene of, or the second to final scene of the film, is an exposition-heavy scene. However, I, I do have an argument for why um, that that is still thrilling, and it's actually Joseph Stefano's argument. Yeah, uh, the screenwriter of the film. Um, so you gave me your sol- your your like selections of what you want to do. Yes, you said Psycho on it, and I was like, well, this would be a good time to talk about it because there is a. There is an element of Hitchcock about how he influences modern filmmaking, but also modern movie going. And this would be a fun way to jump into how you see him today, even without knowing that he did something to contribute to it. And Psycho is a very 
example laden film in regards to that. Oh, very much so. I mean, it. Um, so, yeah. Again, to to really out myself um, about whether or not I should even be here talking about this film. <laughs> the first time that I saw, Psycho, I shouldn't be here talking about anything. <laughs> I did not see this film until August 13th of 2017. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> and yeah, it was, uh, I had, uh, I don't, I think I was in this kind of mood to go to not watch something modern. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, I haven't seen Psycho in a while. I'll watch this. And I threw it in and I'm sitting back watching it. And all of these things are happening that I are brand new to me. Mm -hmm. And the movie got over and I was just like, I think I just watched Psycho for the first time accidentally <laughs> that I was, I was familiar with all of the, you know, with the parlor scene and the, obviously the shower scene mm -hmm. and the end. Um, but a lot of the um, interstitial stuff was, I, I turns out I had never seen the film so, start to finish before. So within that, how many times have you seen it since then? Now I have seen it three and a half times. There you go. So now, so you've now got a, uh, kind of a breakdown of it. Yes. Um, uh, I will do a little bit of my personal history with it. I saw Psycho after the birds at around the age of 10 or 11 um, because I had uh, uh, saw an AFI tribute to 100 villains playing somewhere on the TV, and they talked about Norman Bates as a villain, and they kept talking about the reveal, the reveal, the reveal. And so I picked up Psycho, and at some point I remember not remembering the villain thing. Oh, I just knew the only. like. I was wondering like why they would call him a villain, but then I got the movie, and then I just kind of went in blank somehow, miraculously, and it scared the fuck out of me <laughs> with the shower scene. Um, actually, the scariest scene to me was actually when Marty Balsam's walking up the stairs. Yeah, and then that overhead shot of Mrs. Bates coming out and stabbing him, and him falling down the stairs. The tumble down the stairs creeped me out to the point where I am scared of going up or down stairs to this day because I don't know if my feet are going to be as fanciful as Marty Balsam's. <laughs> well, as long as there's no rear projection behind you, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> no camera rigs. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't have a detective hat on. I'll be fine. Exactly. Um, but uh, and then also. It didn't like scare me in terms of like, oh, my God, when Norman is revealed to be the killer. Oh, spoilers, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes. it, this is a 60 year old movie. You guys should have been fucking watching it. Um, actually, it might be even older than that. It's 19, uh, 1960. Yeah. It's close to 70 years old now. It is. Oh, wow. The first slasher film is 70 years old, guys. Jesus. Um, but anyway, I remember when it was only 40 years old. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, the uh, the the reveal terrified me in a different way because I wasn't expecting to see Anthony Perkins in the dress going for it. Um, I think the skull on the reveal of Norman, Norma Bates being dead was even scarier than Norman coming out. But then the scene in the police station happens mm -hmm. and that push in on Norman at the end with that monologue going on in his head. That's what terrifies me because it was, it was, it was the revelation of the villain could be construed as a hero. Like it was the first time I'd ever seen that. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Psycho is one of my top 10 films of all time. I think it's, it, it's, I've watched this film countless times. Uh, there was a point where I was able to get it put onto my iPod and, or iPod video or whatever. And in high school, and I would watch it, 
any time of the day, like even during class. Like I'd, I'd just, I'd have it there while the teacher was talking and I'd like put the headphone. T- it's like, the, it's like that guy, that kid in the serious man before he gets his headphones <laughs> taken away. Um, yeah. uh, but so it's a film that I keep going back to and I keep revisiting as have other people um, over the course of its history. Um, and I said before in the podcast, in the first episode, we're not here to break any new ground necessarily, but we are here to talk about it so that it's another a, a refreshment course, if you will, so that people who don't know about Hitchcock can, at the very least, if they want to start here, they can, or at the very least, they could consider us highly entertaining or, or incredibly stupid, whatever <laughs> the case may be. Um, so uh, Psycho, as we've been talking about, does change the game for a lot of reasons, and we'll dive into that, but I do want to talk about the production breakdown of Psycho as a, as a historical tool. Now you've having seen and kind of dabbled within this concept, like you've watched obviously the special features, you're a special feature hound. Like very I am. much so. So you watched that hour and 40 minute documentary, I'm sure on, uh, on Hitchcock uh, on the making of Psycho Yes. on the Blu-ray, um, which is uh, those ones that they did for universal in the nineties and 1998 releases are some of the most, like they're the last time capsule we have with the actual stars talking about it. Right. Um, yeah, they're, and they're, so and they're really well produced. I don't think there's one that's even less than 20 minutes. Um, the only one that doesn't, the only Blu-ray that I know that doesn't have an actual full on discussion is Topaz because mm. it's just Leonard Malton talking about how good Topaz is. And I'm like, <laughs> I like 20 minutes of Leonard Malton talking about Topaz because yeah. I like 20 minutes of Leonard Malton talking about anything. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's a wonderful gem. I knew Malton before I knew Ebert. So yeah. He, oh he yeah. Kind of my well, cause it's, this, it's that, that star Wars video introduction. I get you. And then you start watching Disney movies and he's suddenly popping up in those behind the scenes for the golden collection. And I'm like, what's he doing here? Talking about fun and fantasy free. Um, <laughs> But um, and then you see Gremlins too, and then you get to see him. You know, yep. it, you're in the movie. Um, but so Psycho doesn't start off as like anything original concept. Like a lot of Hitchcock movies, it's based on a novel by Robert Block. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not not every f- Hitchcock film by Robert Block, but it's based on a novel. Yes, this novel by Robert Block, which is in turn inspired by the Ed Gein crimes. Um, where if you don't know about Ed Gein, uh, Plainfield, Wisconsin. In the 1950s, it is revealed that he had been killing women, skinning them, and at at, at the very least, like using uh, these different applications of their skin for different household items. He had human ho- organs in the fridge. Um, there was an attempt to make a skin suit, mm-hmm. uh, and Ed Gein was a very troubled man. He, the, it, it horrified and shocked the Wisconsin Police Department. Um, and Ed Gein, it, am I correct? He did have his mother preserved. Yes. No, he did have. He had the corpse there. Yes, he okay. did. Yes, he did have that's the corpse. The, yeah, it's like that's um, kind of what Psycho stole yeah, from it. Right. That, that. Well, that along with the mother complex, which is obvious, you know, to the plot itself. Um, but these crimes then inspire Robert Block, who was a who was a horror writer. Who, if you read any account or or if you listen to David Scow. He uh, is the master of horror puns. Um, so there's a lot like the, the, the most famous quote is like um, he had the heart of a little boy and he kept it on his shelf. Um, <laughs> see, it's a nice. fun little gag yeah, there. Yeah, like there you it. go. Uh, but the, the book Psycho does follow a character named Mary Crane checking into a motel and then getting hacked in the shower. She's beheaded in the book. Decapitated. She's, yeah, she's yeah. decapitated flat out by Norman Bates, who in the book is a 
40-something-year-old grotesque slob of a human being, if we're talking about descriptives and whatnot. Like, yeah. I guess it is, when you think of a serial killer, like a slimy, gross serial killer, there's an image in your head of, like, a fat, balding guy or something like that. Yes. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the beauty of Psycho is that it, uh, the movie is that it upends that notion significantly. Yeah, if you have seen Psycho 2, then uh, the, the Dennis Franz character would have played Norman Bates <laughs> if they were doing an, an accurate adaptation of the novel. Are you going to get in that shower? I'm going to have to show you my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Now I want NYPD Blue set in Bates Motel. Like, just one episode. That's all I need. I don't need it the full series. Like, I get it. Um, Sipowitz solves the Bates murders. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Um, so, um, but it's a novel that comes to the attention of Hitchcock right after North by Northwest mm -hmm. and North by Northwest was made at MGM. Hitchcock had one more film to do at Paramount. Yep. Uh, and other than rear window, Hitchcock hadn't been giving hits to Paramount. <laughs> right. Um, cause vertigo was not a, it broke even, <coughs> um, trouble with Harry was underwhelming to many, although I think trouble with Harry might be one of his best films. I've not um, seen it. It's a wonderfully funny film about how you can't get rid of a body because you keep having to dig it back up. Um, <laughs> it's 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 lovely, and Jerry Mathers plays a little kid in it. Is a little kid at the time. It's just before he does leave it to Beaver. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, and then so he is looking for something to expand beyond his North by Northwest persona, like the idea of like the escapist entertainment of like mm -hmm. man on the run kind of thing. But there's, you know, a lot of books discuss this is that there is uh there seems to be a sense in Hitchcock to want to try to up like to show up a lot of people who are making low budget shockers that turn a heavy profit at the box office. And a notion he has is what if somebody really good did this? And that's where the the notion comes to do something like Psycho. Yeah. And he's um, also tired of working with big stars and big budgets. Yes. Like he, he wants to go smaller and use not as many, like not huge names. He like doesn't want marquee names mm -hmm. um, as the, um, the central like plot drivers. It's, it's almost a sense of trying to go back to the days when he was working at the, um, uh, the, the, the British Gamow period where he has to, or even before that with the, with the early, early silence where he's, having to make do with what he has and cr come up with creative solutions within that. Yeah. Um, and at the same time around this era at time, he is being courted to do the first James Bond movie. And that's like a big get to do Dr. No. And like, I mean, you know, he's not the only one they're tr trying to go after in the Hitchcock stable. Cause they're trying to get Cary Grant to do that. And, uh, for more info on that, see our first episode. But, um, so, so instead he takes a gamble on this dreary, uh, violent story mm -hmm. and decides to put the Hitchcock touch on it. So he hires uh, one writer who doesn't do the job to their satisfaction. Um, Peggy Robertson, his secretary said that the script was dull from this first writer. And she, and one of the best quotes I've ever heard in a behind the scenes thing is like, if you can imagine a dull version of psycho, <laughs> and I'm like, I can't, I can't <laughs> like, they're not right. even close. And it was one of his uh, writers from Hitchcock presents. Yes. The Kavanaugh. I don't remember his first name. Uh, James but... P. Kavanaugh. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, he, he Kavanaugh's out. They get Joseph Stefano who was an up and coming screenwriter as a musician before that. Yep. Um, and Stefano hooks 
Hitchcock into the idea of the movie by tapping into something that Hitchcock is familiar with, which is person on the run. In this case, Marion Crane steals $40,000 to take to her boyfriend. She's on the run Mm -hmm. and enveloping the paranoia until she's hacked in the shower. And Hitchcock says we can get a star to play that role. And that's where immediately we're changing a game because we're going to throw off audience expectations. Right. Um, Because even in the horror films of the past or thrillers of the past, the stars stay around for the most part. There's like nobody truly important in terms of a marquee name gets taken out of there all of a sudden. Um, Like if you watch suspicion, like Nigel Bruce is like low build in the cast. So when he goes, it's not a secret um, that he, that he has the potential to go. But like, if you were to kill Gary Grant 15 minutes in, that would shock everybody. Right. Um, So already we're kind of changing game here. So Stefano writes the script. Hitchcock takes it to Paramount. And Paramount says, we don't want this garbage. (laughs) Not interested. (laughs) Wait, you want to do what now? Do you want to kill somebody in a what? (laughs) Exactly. Who? He's wearing a what now? (laughs) Right. That's basically Hitchcock or Paramount's thing. And Paramount's like, we don't really want to give you our resources to do this. They come up with an idea to fund it themselves. Um, They'll use the television crew from Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, and then Paramount will have the right to distribute it, but Hitchcock retains the rights. Yep. So this is an $800,000 gamble that pays off. The film is shot in a relatively short amount of time. You have a stable of people who are known, but not like that. They're not marquee names, as you said. Yeah. Um, we get a film that, uh, essentially has to be done on a super low budget. So there's a lot of ambition in the pre-planning, um, that Hitchcock is famous for that doesn't quite come to fruition. No, which is really kind of interesting. I've, I've got some notes about that. Yeah. To, just to kind of see, I can, you can almost, there are certain sequences where you can almost feel Hitchcock's frustration mm-hmm. with not being able to execute what he planned mm-hmm. and then sort of just like, okay, whatever, like exasperation about it. Exactly. So this would be a good time to actually just d- jump right in to the plot of Psycho and therefore its characters and everything. So Psycho starts off with a Paramount release, which is hilarious because yes. um, <laughs> it's now owned by Universal. Paramount don't own that shit. <laughs> no. So now that's just fun for us in the future, guys. It wasn't yeah, funny in the past. Thank goodness Universal kept that title card on. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, they've been chopping th- title cards off. Of so that's the thing, though. I've been noticing like on their vault collections, they don't because there's uh, I watched a lot of old comedies mm-hmm. like with some of the older radio comedians. They keep the Paramount logo on there. Oh, that's um, good. I don't know if Kino Lobor, um, who just put out the road movies with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, I don't know if they've done anything with the Paramount logo. But hmm. Universal owning it, like the the uh, the only time I've noticed that Universal changes the logo is when they don't want to show their old logo. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, that's dumb. Sad. Yeah. Now, thankfully, the Universal Monster Collection has retained all that. That's they good. don't. They've they not changed a damn shit. thing. Good. Um. But so. Um, we open up well first that title sequence by Saul Bass. That is that is some fun, innovative uh, title card sequence with the um, with the lines going everywhere and the lines kinda, and the dancing yeah, psycho and yeah, dancing the, Alfred Hitchcock. Already, <laughs> we're establishing that not everything's normal in this world, and right. you're about to go on a bit of a roller coaster in terms of franticness and insanity. Then we open up on this opening shot in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Friday, since it's December black and, 11th, <laughs> Friday, December 11th, 43 p.m., which 
Okay, it, we're, we're, I have a question for you. Yes. So Friday, December 11th. Uh-huh. But it takes place in December. In the film, you can see Christmas lights technically. Yes. In certain places. So my question is, in this world that we live in where everything's a Christmas movie, is Psycho a Christmas movie? <laughs> oh, man, I hope so. I, I mean, like, because if that's the case, then Die Hard is immediately off my list and Psycho is the best Christmas movie ever made. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is uh, hilariously, uh, according to the uh, Psycho historian, the title card was a necessity after the fact because they um, got some of the uh, Christmas decorations mm-hmm. from shooting in wherever they were shooting. I'm assuming Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, they, it was in the background of some of the shots when they were actually on location. And so they were like, well, damn it. Now we have to like figure out how to call attention to that. Right. And so it had to be in December. But it is like, but actually the title card itself is interesting because it lays the groundwork immediately for something we now see all the time, which is like specifying it almost as if though you're watching a criminal case unfold from the police's perspective yeah. to a degree. Now, that's not to say that this film is from the police perspective. However, like it, it, it lends a bit of officiality to it. Like it blurs the line of reality a little bit, especially at that time. Right. Well, it's, I think, and it's also helping set up. I mean, one of the things that I, I think is so interesting that I love about Hitchcock is like, and, and we'll get into this more, but I, I feel like the only reason that Hitchcock is interested in psycho is the shower scene. Like mm. that's what he loved about um, uh, the script by Stefano. Yeah, and um, I think that like everything revolves around the shower scene and then the reveal and kind of what is involved in that. And so, but in order to have fun with the audience, he you know has this whole plot mm-hmm. of everything that's going on. <laughs> oh, that pesky plot! <laughs> and so I think that title sequence with these with these cards specifying date and time and everything like that is cluing the audience into like these are important things you need to pay attention because the sequence of events is going to be important to this both in like the day so you're understanding like she has a weekend to get away Mm -hmm. before she's held accountable on monday and the time to kind of understand what's been going on in this apartment and it's a lunch hour and it lends to his trademark of i'm going to lay in these details they may not all matter specifically but they enhance your viewing pleasure of the film yes um so we have this tracking shot that goes in he originally wanted to upend the tracking shot in a touch of evil um by having it be this most elaborate helicopter shot and they had to tell hitchcock hitch we can't afford that kind of shot with the money we're doing and he goes well fuck so we do cut in between the sequence. Which is like, th- this is at the beginning of this. This is so, it's very jarring. There are a couple sequences in this movie that are like awkwardly clunky. Mm-hmm. And this is one. Right. Because it was this, yeah, like you said, it's a helicopter shot that was designed to show a wide of Phoenix, Arizona, and to go all the way in track into the hotel mm-hmm. window and then to the bed. And they just couldn't execute that. Mm-hmm. So it starts off with just a pan across the city. And then a start of a zoom in. And then there's an optical. There's a fade as we get closer to the window. Mm-hmm. And then a hard cut to the window. And right. it's like, why wasn't that a fade? Yeah. Like, it's just like, he's just like, well, if I can't have what I want, I don't care how it's edited. Like, just just jump to it. I wonder if it's, there, I mean, because like, obviously he knows, like, he and his wife, Alma Revel, the great Alma Revel, were editor, have editing background, like, to the extreme degree. Alma, especially, Alma was an editor in Britain at the, uh, at the time when they met. Okay. So she was used to looking at things frame by frame. I have to imagine, from an editing standpoint, and there were working with George Thomasini, the longtime editor as well, 
there's got to be something within Hitchcock conveying something off while still trying to get that elaborate shot. Obviously, since he doesn't have the tools to play with, having it be a single shot into the window, mm-hmm. he he already creates a sense of frantic uh, uh, of a frantic world. Um, and again, it may not be intentional. It may just be this is all I had to work with, and maybe we made a mistake in the editing room. However, it sets the tone for me that something's not quite right in the world of Psycho. Yeah, as because opposed, it is so jarring yeah, right off the bat. It should be a dissolve. As opposed to everything else that Hitchcock's done, which is very slick and sleek, and it's technically efficient. And Hitchcock is technically efficient in Psycho, but to a different degree. Yes. Um, and then we open up on Marion Crane and um, Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin. Um, uh and uh, Marion Crane, by, by the great Janet Lee, who actually her birthday would have been yesterday. Hmm. Um, she, she's passed now, and that's yes. sad. Um, but I saw much of, a bunch of loving tributes on Instagram yesterday, nice. <laughs> and I was just like, "Gosh, she was she was wonderful." Yes. Um, and um, the they're they're making out in the hotel room. It's revealed that they're they're kind of like they're 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 breaking away in their lunchtime, having a lunchtime dalliance, if you will. Sam's divorced. Uh, she's single and there's this kind of like there's there's a there's a naughtiness to what they're doing because i think it's just because they're meeting up in motel rooms they're kind of acting suspicious as it stands yeah i think and it's just basically like kind of what i got out of it is that it's still kind of a it's it's still the social taboo to not be married and to be engaged in this sort of way that exactly yeah so it's the sex it's the sex element of it so already we're starting off with breaking a lot of barriers about what you could show on screen, like she's in her bra in the in the movie. Right, like this is already something very different for an audience at the time, uh, be, whether it's between 1959 up to 1961. Um, and then we have this conversation about, oh, if I only had the money, if I only had the money. Yeah. Um, which to me, that's more normal lunch break talk. Um, making out on a bed is not necessarily what you do with your lunchtime. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what everybody else does. Um, I like to eat lunch. Um, but uh, so she um, she's she seems in a rut like, well, my boyfriend doesn't have this money that he needs. I don't have the money that he needs. Um, but we and they're also talking about meeting each other respectively and not just meeting in the hotel rooms. And I mean, John Gavin gets a lot of flack for kind of being a wooden stick in this movie. But I will say, like, he is charming in the film. There is a charm to him. There's something there. It the very least it's enough for me to believe that she would love this man um, yes. or, or be in love with this man. Uh, so then we go to uh, her work where the, the most stereotypical Texan alive oh, man. comes he's in drunk off his ass. Oh, he's terrible, but wonderful at the same time. It's amazing. Tom Cassidy. Yeah. And Tom Cassidy says flat out, I've got $40,000 in cash. I'm going to wave it in your face like a fucking asshole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of my favorite lines, and it's a line that unfortunately I think applies too much to today's billionaires is, you know what I do about unhappiness? I buy it off. I buy it off. <laughs> <laughs> now that's not buying happiness. That's just buying unhappiness. <laughs> that fun- and then, um, so she uh, gets the money in her hand uh, this Texan is buying the ha- buying a house for his daughter with straight cash, which is unusual as it stands. But there is a good explanation of it where he's just like, it's my private money. I could do whatever I want. So it's already money he's hiding away because he's a shady businessman as it stands. Right. Because at, at um, yeah, at one point, uh, the woman that 
um, Marion Crane shares the office with. Oh, by Pat, Pat Hitchcock. The, yep, the great Pat Hitchcock. Is, uh, says, when she sees the money, she says, I do declare. And, and he, he goes, he says, I, and I don't. That's how I get to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> right, so that's why it's in the form of cash is because he's not uh, claiming this on his tax. Exactly. Um, so he and um, he, Cassidy and the boss are going to get uh, drunk. And so Marion hands them some papers and says, if you don't mind, I'm going to go. Um, which we're going to stop for a second because there's a meme in this movie <laughs> before there were memes. There's those memes of when I was younger and then me today. That's basically within the two lines. Like you ought to go out for and see Las Vegas, the playground of the world. And then Marion Crane goes, I'm going to spend the weekend in bed. Thank you. That's a before and after meme <laughs> in the sixties, man. Um, again, like, you know, I'm stretching, but this is fun. Yes. Um, and then there was the cut line after that in the script. Well, she says, I'm going to spend the weekend in bed. And he, uh, Tom Cassidy, originally responded something along the lines of. That's what she like, said? No, like, uh, <laughs> bed is like the second best playground to Vegas oh. or something like that. <laughs> oh, Tom Cassidy is the the roughest, smoothest person ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, yeah, he's laying on thick. He's definitely laying on the sexual harassment. Do all you over think the place we could have given him a sitcom? <laughs> at the time it would have been appropriate like slurry sexist texas man yeah i mean the i i do have to say that you know obviously there's nothing about the sexual harassment that's charming but no not gives, at all when he gives away the fact that their boss is hiding liquor in their office and his like oh, oh, oh like oh i got someone in trouble mm -hmm. is just it's it's very endearing it's endearing and it's also like i'm a big man baby <laughs> yes, yes very big man baby oh god so she leaves and there's a great scene that lends to the pure his cinema of Hitchcock. Uh, actually, a lot of the extended scenes leading up to the car, the car dealership do this. But this scene in particular, in the span of a scene in her room where she's packing, he tells the audience that she's having an internal dilemma without her saying a word. Like, no, no, no uh, talking to myself or trying to rationalize with myself. She does it all through right. visual acting. Because she's tasked with taking the 40000 to, to, the, to bank. the bank. Yeah. Yep. And so, but in this one, she's essentially just making the decision to rob her boss and... You know, fun fact with the costuming, this is when she starts wearing the black bra. Yes. And um, which, again, lingerie, very, very disturbing at the time. Like very a lot of people were scared of bras at back then. It <laughs> yes. was, there's a big bra war back in the 60s that nobody <laughs> talked was, about. Yes. Many the same, casualties. Yeah. It was it was somewhere in Korea. I can't remember where. Um, but well, um, and the thing that I, I really love about that that sequence that you're talking about where she's having this internal dilemma is you see her kind of staring at this envelope with the that's half empty with the cash in it. Mm hmm. And you are experiencing this dilemma of like, should I take it? Should I not take it? And then the camera pans over and you see she has already packed her bags. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like her mind is made up. And so, but as, as the audience, you're thinking you're experiencing a dilemma and it come to find out that you are seeing, it's almost like a check-in of like, am I making the right decision? Yeah. Sort of thing. It's like, she's already on that path it's because she already has a black bra on. Right? It's the so last call. The yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. So she's already she's already made it up in her mind that she's going to do this, but she's maybe she's trying to talk herself out of it, um, which I appreciate because it, it it's one more thing that makes you feel for Marion and relate to Marion. Um, yes. Regardless. I mean, like it's it's it's, you know, we'll talk a little bit about it when we get to the shower scene. But like it is one of the female Hitchcock characters that I do believe is a at the very least, a very active participant and making decisions and, 
you may not agree with them and you may have problems with what happens to her afterwards in terms of the grand scheme of Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. But she's a fascinating character to observe, observe and watch because she deliberately steps into a trap. She says so in a line. Yes. Um, and it's interesting to relate to how any one of us could step into our own little private trap. Right, yeah. And I, I, when, once we uh, start to get onto theme and stuff, that there's some stuff that I really love that I'd, I'd love to kind of like go back and forth with you about uh, relating to that. Absolutely. Of her kind of like taking charge. Yeah. So then she, she books it. Her boss notices her on the way out. Um, which is which is a great so like great. it's a great like oh 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 that's right yeah that's her boss um, and then she drives off um, she sleeps on the side of the road cop interrogates her um, cop follows her to a car dealership where she switches cars uh, which that is the most genial slash annoying car salesman I've ever seen because he's California Charlie yeah <laughs> that's first time I ever seen the customer high pressure the salesman <laughs> yes. And there's a line in there that just like slips under the surface, which which gets in. I'll I'll, I'll bring it up again. Um, oh, is it the one I'm thinking of? It. Uh, let's see. I wrote it down here somewhere. Um, he tells her, "You can do anything you have a mind to. Being a woman, you will." Yep. When she says, "Can I trade in my car for another one?" So <laughs> we'll 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 get this right off the bat here. I mean, we'll probably keep talking about it too, but because there's another line by Norman Bates that adds to that a little bit in a weird way. But um, you know, I talked about this last week in regards to the feminine intuition that Grace Kelly has in Rear Window. Uh, these statements are of the time, unfortunately. They are not un- – they're, um, they're not uncommon. And No. But I think it's fitting in, in part of what the film is doing with this – with the character of Marion Crane and with this idea – This there's a dynamic going on, I think, between – um, general constructs of male and female, mm-hmm. and I think that 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 phrase and her interactions with California Charlie reinforced that the same way that they did with um, the what's his, Tom Cassidy. Yeah, um, but so she leaves the um, the 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 car dealership. She runs through in her head with her little uh, internal monologue via other people talking about her and just imagining what they're going through and how she's pleased with herself to a degree. She gets caught in the rain. She finds us. Uh, she gets. She turns off the highway in the wrong direction. And where does she land in the Bates Motel, um, which has a vacancy? Has twelve vacancies. Twelve, 12, 12, 12 cabins. Rooms, Twelve, 12 vacancies. vacancies. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take it to cabin number one. Um, and so uh, I, I, uh, she, a nice young man, comes out and uh, gets her, uh, gets her stuff, and brings her uh, inside the office of the motel uh this young man is norman bates he's played by anthony perkins which in any subsequent viewing of your first time in psycho that is where the movie begins this Mm -hmm. is the anthony perkins show yeah he is he wipes the floor with every single other performer in this film agreed and it, it what's interesting is well and there's a there's an element of two different movies somehow working as one movie because of this Mm -hmm. I mean, Marion Crane's story is important. However, it is a catalyst to get to Norman and to thematically tie into the idea of a private trap or we're all caught in our little traps or we're all we're all burdened by something to a degree like or like we we feel there's because there's a lot of Norman that you can compare to Marion in terms of their feeling of helplessness. Yes. Um, And so she she looks at the Bates uh, house, which is big old house on a hill she's a woman walking around 
Um, there, that woman may or may not be important to this story. We'll talk about that. Um, but then Norman checks her in uh, to cabin number one after he hears she's from Los Angeles. So already he thinks that she's of looser morals. <laughs> so this will be way easier to spy on her in the <laughs> in the in the hole in the wall. Um so and then she and he invites her to have a private conversation um in or, or to have or to have dinner um yes. sandwiches in the uh, in his parlor. Um and um well, originally I, at the house. Or yeah, originally at the house and then they go into the den of the office, mm-hmm. which I think that this scene is one of my favorite scenes in Psycho 2. Um that doesn't have to necessarily do with the horror element of it. Like it is a very solid written scene, well shot, well framed. And it really, it breaks into Norman and it almost gives stuff away about Norman that you would otherwise just assume that he is the killer from the get-go mm. because of just the way he's talking. But at the time, this is not, uh, this isn't a character trait we're used to of like somebody, some normal looking man like this going insane and killing people. Right. So he just feels like a frustrated mama's boy who doesn't have the guts to leave, which Already we're talking about ideas of masculinity versus ideas of the modern context of what masculinity should be. Right. Um, right. Because he goes up to prepare dinner mm-hmm. to the house. And that's when we hear this fight between he and his mother. No, I tell you, no, <laughs> you can't bring her in here. She sounds just like Mad Madame Mim. From... <laughs> and I looked it up. They are not the same voice actress. No, of course but, not. But the, uh, there were... In a, in a more Hitchcock brilliance, he had several voice actors playing uh, the voice of mother throughout the film. Mm-hmm. But that first one, when you hear from us, it sounds exactly like Mad Men and Men. Yeah, to the point <laughs> where I'm just like, Archimedes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. It almost sounds like there's some versions of her that sound like a cross between that and uh, the the voice of possessed Reagan in The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, you just have to tone back Reagan, but maybe increase Men and Men. But uh, so they have their conversation about the private traps. Norman breaks down his history about how he's lived with his mother and how she's an invalid and their relationship on a base level as mother and son, mm-hmm. um, which already taps into an ideal of masculinity and upbringing that is now different today. But there is, but psychological concepts within what he's discussing are still relevant to a certain extent about how an upbringing influences a child going forward. The Very nature, so. the nature nurses nurture argument. Yes, which we're still constantly in struggle with to this day in terms of when any situation comes up. Right. What's amazing about it is that Psycho is is not it's not the first to bring this up, but it is the one to kind of hit it on the nose in a creative way. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you could argue white heat goes into the familial complex right before, way before that. Um, but this film in particular adds a dynamic to it with this creepy setting that is the, is the tone setter for a kind of villain we're going to see going forward for the next 70 years. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's also, you know, I think one of the things that, um, Stefano really brought to the script, mm-hmm. um, that he talks about in the documentary is that while he was writing it, he himself was currently in 
uh, Freudian analysis. Freudian yeah. analysis. Yeah, not even just regular analysis. Freudian analysis. Yeah, so like very, very strictly that. And so, and that really interested Hitchcock. And so, I think that he was really prompted to dive into that upbringing mm-hmm. role, the relationship between son and mother, and and that sort of thing. And and we actually get a very for that time. I'm shocked that the line was allowed where uh, Norman says. A son makes a poor substitute Two for, for a, a lover. lover. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's definitely. I mean, it's just you. We're no longer talking the subtext of incest here. It's we're just talk, like that's, that's that's pretty it, overt. It, it's text, yeah. um, which uh, and there's a there's a to add into that. There is a a, a level of Hitchcock expanding on a theme that he's already addressed to one degree or another in other films. Um, he has always addressed mother complexes, but in different ways. This is the most head-on. Um, he definitely discusses it in Notorious um, with Claude Rains' mother character. Um, and he does it comedically with Joyce uh, Jesse Royce Landis in To Catch a Thief and North by Northwest, mm-hmm. um, playing Grace Kelly's mother and then Cary Grant's mother, which don't get <laughs> me started on that because that's crazy. She should just be his lover in a movie at some point. It'll never happen because I can't change the past. But um, but this one in particular, it addresses the mother complex head on and more more importantly, it also addresses like head on his possible, at least from a story perspective, like his view on how a parent affects a child. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's like we said there's debates on that but what's interesting is that it's present on the screen for the first time in cinema history in such a blatant fashion yes um and and norman isn't necessarily calm in that scene he gets very angry so you already see that there's violent tendencies just within his speech like there's a there's a hatred there Yes, but there's also like a, a guilt and regret. Like it's it's one of the most amazing performances in cinema, guys. It it really is. I mean, especially I mean, for, from the moment we see um, Norman Bates, he is this shy, kind of uh, stuttering, bumbly um, motel clerk. Yeah, clerk. Yeah. and then in this parlor scene we slowly see these different layers of him as he is still trying to perform, but then they start talking about deeper things. Mm -hmm. And then she brings up how his mother treats him. And then he's able to kind of talk about that. And then she suggests that he put her in an asylum. Oh, you mean an institution? An institution. A madhouse? (laughs) But she's harmless. She's, She's as harmless as one of these stuffed birds. And that's when he snaps. I think that's the only time in the whole film that we actually see the true Norman Bates when, you know, when she apologizes and says, um, oh, they click their tongues and suggest, oh, so very delicately. Yes. <laughs> um, so she realizes within that that she stepped into her own private trap, meeting this kid who has been through the mental ringer. <laughs> Yeah. Even, even without having stabbed her yet. She knows that he's gone through a mental ringer throughout his entire life and that she's about to step into one that will cause her anguish for years. So she decides that she's going to return the money. She adds up what she owes and feels good about it. And so she's going to take a long hot shower. Oh, which, by the way, before that, we see that Norman Bates is a peeping Tom, yes. which this is the same year that a movie called Peeping Tom came out, which tackles the same issues. <laughs> yes. Um, it's the British um, version of Psycho. Yeah, but um, also, so the it's a lovely, a lovely contrivance mm-hmm. um, by the writer, but 
as far as cinema history goes, once she does her quick figuring of uh, the $40,000 minus the car money, mm-hmm. this, I think it was $700 that she spent on the car, yeah. she tears up the note and throws it in a toilet and flushes it, which yes. is the first time that both a toilet and a flush have oh, happened in cinema hold history. Hold on, Marshall. Yes. You can show a toilet in a movie? You can. What the f- holy fuck are you talking about? That's where people put na- naughty things. You're wrong. Like, There's no way that an American film would show a toilet. Yes, this was apparently an issue with people. <laughs> Um, but yes, no, this is like, it's, it's funny though. It's like when you read about it in the documentary or even listen to it in the documentaries, it doesn't seem like it's something that was of the most amazing importance, like on the surface, but it is something that just hadn't been done. Yes. Um, and it definitely is the result of a censorship board run by the postmaster general of the United. It doesn't make sense. But he, this idiot ran an institution that censored stupid things, uh, yes. is what I'll call it. And that was one thing that just wasn't shown. And I've checked. Even if you look back to, like, the Thin Man, which has scenes in bathrooms, there's no toilet in yeah, there. It's no, almost as if, the though, sets. they just shit in the tub. Like, <laughs> exactly, which is more disgusting than just showing a toilet. Exactly. Well, William <laughs> Powell was a drunk, so it wouldn't... It, it, the character William Powell plays in The Thin Man is a drunk. So it wouldn't be beyond me to suggest that he maybe shit in the toilet okay, more than yeah, once. Just maybe not on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Him and Myrna Loy <laughs> and Astor too. Um, so the uh, she she gets in the shower, turns on the shower, takes a long hot shower, and then we get into the shower scene, which is the granddaddy of every element of cinema working together at once. Yes. Um, there's a whole documentary dedicated to this scene, thankfully, that we have nowadays by uh, Alexandre Ophilippi. Yep. Um, who also did Doc of the Dead, which is a really good documentary. Yes, and The People versus George Lucas. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that fun flick. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's um, So this scene is Marion getting stabbed in the shower by mother. Um, and it's, so I have a, I've, I'm trying to think of a moment in film or a thing in film that is more a part of lexicon. Then I'm thinking like maybe Luke, I am your father is probably that people mm-hmm. know that know it's from Star Wars. And I but I think the number two spot has to be the shower scene in Psycho. I agree. There are many. Um, uh, well, Casablanca with here's looking at you, kid. But even still today, because I was yeah. I was going there. I was going there. Here's looking at you, kid. And frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I don't think Rosebud Ooh. works anymore because I don't think anybody watches that masterpiece anymore. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Uh, watch Citizen Kane, guys. It's really good. Orson Welles tried very hard to do great things, and people fucked him. Um, some did. Not later in life. That's a whole other story. Um, but you're right. It, it People know what they know Bernard Herman because it means terror. They don't even know it means psycho. That's, that's the astounding part of it. Right. right. Um, It's the similar to a film that would be influenced by psycho, which is Halloween. People know that theme Mm -hmm. just off the top of their heads. They don't even know if it's associated with Halloween or not, but it's like, cause it's a simple thing you learn on the piano now. Yes. Um, And the shower scene in general, when you say the shower scene, it invokes, it's, it invokes terror. Yes. It invokes a, an image of somebody being stabbed in the shower. Yeah. You don't even have to describe what's exactly happening shot for shot in the 7852 that you have of it all. Right. It's simply just, it's a feeling. It's, it ceases to become an image. It becomes a feeling. Yes. And actually, there's there's probably an inst- interesting conversation in there, too, about the legacy of the of 
a slasher event paired with music, mm. a la like you you mentioned Halloween, but there's also the from Friday the Thirteenth, and these these pairings of slasher genres with a specific theme mm-hmm. that is like immediately identifiable. I would even say Freddy with um, the which which Bernstein has said when he does that theme, it's to take you in discord. And Herman, we, we should talk about Bernard Herman a little bit because he is a, a frequent collaborator of Hitchcock's, yes. but he's also one of the greatest composers that ever lived. Apparently he saved this film. Yes. Um, well, because Hilton Green said that when they watched the film that it was like just plain. Like it, like it didn't have anything. Like it, The music is what brings it to life. Yeah, Hitchcock thought it was a disaster. He was going to cut it up into a television show. Yeah, well, and, and there's this... There's the thing about the shower sequence, like even when he was still scoring it, uh, Herman's Herman wanted the shower scene to have that, and Hitchcock didn't think it would work, and then they put it in, and yes. Hitchcock was like, "All right, I'm fucking wrong. So what?" Which and this, God, <laughs> on the Blu-ray they have that sequence without the score, which and it sounds like a year two film student who like just found a sound bank mm-hmm. of stuff, and it's just like it is so bad. Yeah. It is so bad without that music. Yeah, it make like the music makes that entire scene. Consequently, though, uh, there's a little fact of how uh, Psycho and Star Wars are connected because when they when uh, Paul Hirsch were uh, and the other editors for Star Wars were laying in the temp tracks before John Williams would go in and do his score that mm-hmm. we now love know and love today. Uh, the scene in the Millennium Falcon where the stormtroopers are coming or searching the Millennium Falcon find nothing. And then the grates open up to reveal they're underneath uh, the the floor of the ship. Mm-hmm. They used the three note cue from Psycho, to like it's just like mm, mm, mm. like that that that's the cue they used. And then Williams used those same three notes in a similar ish cue for the score of Star Wars. Beautiful. So I'm saying that Norman Bates is a Jedi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Sith. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then believe me, the internet will have a problem with that too, as they do with everything. Um, but so, uh, so the, the shower sequence happens. And by the way, it's, it, we're already changing the game here by having her nude in that, in that shower. Yes. Being stabbed. But every cut in the film is done appropriately. Or every shot in the film is appropriate by all standards. But when you combine it together, you think you see something that isn't there. Yes, you think you see nudity. You think you see uh, like direct violence. Yeah, which you, which you don't. It's just your dirty, dirty mind. Um, <laughs> Shame on you. Yeah, exactly. How dare you have like fucking thoughts like that? Go to hell. Um, don't worry, I'll join you there later. Uh, but so and, and like and that was a big problem with the the censors at the time. They did it. They had to bring it through twice. Um, Peggy Robertson in an interview on the Hitchcock documentary um, on Psycho's Blu-ray said that um, one of the guys said, I know I saw something. And they and Hitchcock said, no, you didn't. Bernie is in your dirty little mind. And then they showed it again and he said he didn't see anything. Yeah. So already, like, it was a matter of negotiative tactics or or at the very least just it, it's it's an argument tactic that. When he saw it the second time, he didn't see anything. Well, and it was um, it, it sounds like I have heard reports that Hitchcock did something similar to what later um, the uh, uh, South Park boys did with Team America, 
where they purposefully put stuff in the film that was way outrageous so that when the censors brought it back down, yeah, 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 yeah. that it was more to where he wanted it, that there were, there were sequences or certain shots around the um, shower scene, not in the shower scene itself, but around it that he knew were not going to make it, but were supposed to be sensational enough that he was trying to draw attention and distract away from the shower scene because he knew that had to be what it was. Right. And the... Uh, there's actually censored shots of Janet Lee taking off her bra in full that were then cut from it. Which Germany has, damn it. Y- yeah, exactly. Which, yeah. It's got to come here eventually. Europe's got <laughs> Europe's got a lot of great things. They've got Dawn of the Dead on Blu-ray. Um, we don't get that, guys. Um, so uh, the shower scene happens. Norman leaves. Janet Lee uh, is lying on the floor, de- uh, in the tub, floor dead, like having, like limping over the tub element of it all. Yes. <coughs> and, um, which that shot still of pulling out, like if you're an editor, you do notice her breathing, but it's still effective. Like it doesn't distract you from anything. It's a beautiful shot. Well, I think that, I mean, I've, I've watched, I watched that several times, both in preparation for this. And then I also watched the, uh, the documentary. And I think that it's actually, it's, her um carotid artery it's not her breathing Mm. um and i and there's also a little jump in her eye Mm -hmm. and i think that like for me i'm not if if that had still been going on when norman comes back to clean up that would have been a little bit beyond my ability to like suspend disbelief um but the fact that like the life is ebbing out of her still at that point yes and her especially with her doubled over the tub like i think you know i'm not a doctor but I think that <laughs> just be clear. We are not doctors. Yes. There's an aspect of that, that, that still kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is an awkward cut there and that is where she was breathing. Yeah. Um, and which, which I think like, even if she blink were to blink, it would still kind of like represent the life going out of her. Yes. But the specific vision of Hitchcock was a person where the life is essentially all drained out of her. Right. But that's why there is a cut back to the shower head before then it goes up. And then you hear one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is mother. Oh God, mother blood, blood, blood. <laughs> which he kind of sounds a little bit like Jimmy Stewart from that far away. Yeah. So I was expecting Jimmy Stewart to come in and be like, Oh no, I did it again. <laughs> oh God. I got to stop blacking out. <laughs> I'm out of bleach. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I got to call in some experts boys. We got a body to bury again. <laughs> Um, so no, but Anthony Perkins walks in and not Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yes. Um, and he's shocked and horrified and unsurprised too. Like almost like he knows like he, this was going to happen, which, you know, if we're talking about watching this clean and not knowing Norman and his revelations, mm-hmm. there is a genuine terror in there. And like, there's an, uh, there's a level of the audience being sympathetic with him because he, we do think that this is a crazy old lady committing murders and her son's having to clean up the evidence. Right. And that, I think that is my favorite sequence of the film. That is also some just like pure cinema. Yes. It's just, it, it, that is it turns a... into a silent movie is mm-hmm. we've just watched this horrific event with this very bombastic music and all of these effects. And then there's this thud as she hits the ground and the shower is running in the background and this entire sequence plays yeah. just in silence as he's slowly wrapping up the body and taking it to the car and driving it to the swamp and it's all played in silence. And you only and have sound effects perfect. when they're needed. Like yes. they're only like, and they're always like, he always does this where he turns down the sound effect level on the volume. Like the volume of a sound effect or a Foley is so insignificant. 
but it's there to register that it exists. Yes. So it's not, it's not going to be the, but he doesn't want it to be your primary focus. And he has him with the candy corn, like eating the candy corn while he's watching the car go down. And one of those great moments where the car stops and he gets worried and then the car goes back down and then he smiles. But it's man, like it a is... little boy that got away with stealing candy from the store. Oh, yeah. And it's I mean, it's that is. I think that sequence really endears me to Hitchcock as a filmmaker. There's just you can see the glint in Hitchcock's eye and that sequence when the car stops from sinking all the way mm-hmm. and. He cuts back <laughs> to Norman and he's staring at it and then realizes like, it's just, it's, I think if it were cut today, it wouldn't be cut as well. I think you would jump straight to it back to Norman and him realizing that it stopped, but it's right. just him watching and there's like three beats and then he realizes that it stopped. Yeah. And then he does this, like look over his shoulder, look all the way behind him. Like, yeah, he is looking back at it, but he's also like really paranoid at that moment. But but it's almost just like is anybody else seeing this? Like yeah. what is like what am I gonna do? Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's just it's played for comedy. And yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, and then and then it continues to glug down, and then you get that. See, I've never thought of it that way before. I, that, that, but that does lend into Hitchcock's humor. Like for me, the humor moments come in different places in Psycho. But that is now, oh, God, that is a good moment of comedy. I mean, it's just like dark comedy. Yeah, no, oh, that is good. And then this and that lends to his macabre sense of humor, very much, which so. is the. You know, it's it's even darker than any of the introductions you see on the Hitchcock Presents show and mm-hmm. stuff. So, uh, Marion's dead. Uh, we go to Sam Loomis's hardware shop uh, where there is a funny, outwardly funny conversation about. Uh, uh, I always feel that the roach sh- or, or the, I, I I don't care what kind of spray they use. I just want to know if it's um, if if it if it's painless. <laughs> if it's painless. if it's one thing I can't stand is people is seeing the bugs suffer or something like that, which is fun yes um and then mary marion's sister lila comes in um and uh confronts loomis trying to find out where marion is and then enter in uh marty balsam as arbogast the world's great the world's greatest detective batman straight into camera batman can take a back seat marty balsam is the greatest detective in cinema history um so we have marty balsam who is the um uh, Detective Frank uh, Frank Arbogast, yes, who is a is a is a good in between to get us into more of Norman's psyche, but he's also a fun character to play with, like the private detective, like that. We were talking about not bringing the police into something because mm-hmm. um, it's dull and boring, and like it, things get wrapped up and um, or just nothing gets, is resolved. As a private investigator, he at least in this point in time in our history has free reign to just fuck around with, um, with, uh, warrants and everything like that. Um, so he's basically just kind of like doing his own little snooping. Um, he says he's going to go check motel to motel. He lands at the Bates motel and he interviews Norman. And I think the, the interrogation of Norman is a, is a scene that has some of the most innovative or like, or interesting shots in psycho in terms of how do you film a conversation now we're taught in film school and you're taught just in general that conversation scenes can be dull and lagging. Like they're the least, they can be the least visually interesting thing in your movie. Right. There are shots in this film specifically of Norman, uh, where there is a way to communicate danger or, um, terror 
without even saying a word. And the scene, the shot in particular, which um, noted uh, noted filmmaker Martin Scorsese, who seems to pop up in every behind the scenes documentary ever made, um, talks about a shot where when uh, Arbogast is looking over the ledger and there's a shot from underneath Norman and then Norman kind of tilts his head out and his neck is like protruding out and it holds on Norman like kind of trying to observe the situation. It's so askew that it already suggests that Norman's up to something or at the very least, like there's something Norman's not talking about. Yeah. Even, even on the span of, we know he's not going to reveal anything about his mother. We also know that something else is wrong and combined with him eating that candy corn. Like it's, it's a, it's an unsettling shot. Yes. And it lends to why Norman is an effective villain by the time we get the reveal because of just how, unsuspecting yet terrifying get creepy it is essentially right um so they have the interrogation and um arbogast brings up the thought like just for the sake of argument let's say that she that marion had asked you to uh protect her from the law like you know you'd be played a fool and norman says the line no i'm not a fool and i'm not capable of being made a fool not even by a woman so we're back to uh, this whole um, contextual notion of the time, but also but then he takes it back. Yeah, exactly. Right after that, he what? says, "Well, she may have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother." Which okay, so <laughs> so right here we'll talk about it about the the treatment of women in this film. So it's 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 undeniable that Marion is punished almost intentionally for the sake of story, but also just as a, as a character in whole because of the deed she commits. See, I don't, I, I would disagree with you on that. Okay. Um, and I think that this, um, I think that the, the film is playing a, um, a role, a traditional role of male versus female. Yes. Through the entire script. Okay. And the, um, sort of the way that it has structured that is it has, Maleness is traditionally aggressive and in control, mm-hmm. and the femaleness is traditionally passive and is submitting. Mm-hmm. But Marion Crane makes a decision to pursue, to take control, to be mm. aggressive. She steals the money, and she's—I mean, she is even the one in the hotel room. She actually proposes to Sam Loomis, right? Yeah. She says, "Oh, Sam, let's get married." Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, and what are we going to do? Live in the back of my workshop?" You're, you're right. No, that's that's a good point. So so she is taking control mm-hmm. in, in this entire thing. And then she encounters someone when she meets Norman mm-hmm. is a male who is who has a passive role in his relationship with his mother because his mother is the one who has the aggressive role. Right. And I actually have a I'm 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 working on this idea. Hopefully, you know, like I, I, I I'm I find this sort of stuff really fun, but I actually think the thing that kills Marion Crane is when she gives up her aggressiveness mm-hmm. because she decides to go back to Phoenix and return the money. And I think that is when Norman decides to kill her. Mm. I do not think that when he sees her drive up, <clears throat> when he puts her in cabin one, I don't think in, I don't think he's seeing her as a, as a target for murder. Mm-hmm. I think he's attracted to her. Um, but, and I, and then I think in the parlor conversation, he finds an ally because 
she obviously alludes to um, going mad, right? And he says, we all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you? And she says, well, sometimes all it takes is once. And there's this moment of connection that he has because of the control that he took, again, spoilers, when in murdering his mother. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he took that control, and now he finds this point of connection with this woman, and she immediately gives it back up. Mm. She says, "Oh, I'm you know I'm gonna go back and get myself out of this mess." And you look at he, he cocks his head and he goes, "Oh, really?" Like he's disappointed. And that I think that you watch that performance, and I think that there is a turn there that happens in him mm-hmm. to say, "Well, she's no longer this aggressor, and if she's gonna choose the passive role." Then what does he do with passive things? He specifically uses that word when he talks about the birds that he can't find. He can't bring himself to stuff mm-hmm. and taxidermy beasts because he doesn't like seeing something active turned into something passive. That mm-hmm. he, he takes these passive things mm-hmm. and he stuffs those just Ooh. like he did with his mother. Once she became passive by mm-hmm. giving over control to this man who made her build the motel. Ooh. And the same thing happens with Marion. Marion goes passive. And so now all of a sudden she becomes a target mm-hmm. for, for murder. That, that is a, wow, that's a really good argument. Um, and I, and, and I should clarify my previous thing. I don't, there, there is a, there is a notion of she commits a crime so she gets punished. Right. But that is a very well thought out and well educated uh, dissection of that moment because it does, it does present a lot more to Norman than meets the eye, even even on the surface that we've been discussing for the past 70 years. And I'd I'd even kind of go forward on that is that the there's kind of like two. Di- well, because there's always two different switches with Norman. And I think one of the switches is after he's looked in through the wall because mm-hmm. there is a kind of a jerk of his head in there, too, before he goes back up, when he clearly goes up back up to the house and yes. sits in the and sits in the kitchen alone. So it's almost like he's trying to control it. So maybe he made that decision, looks in there as mother and goes back in and it's Norman trying to fight off mother. Well, I think, yeah, that I think that there's, so there's this really quick sequence of events where she decides to leave the conversation. Mm -hmm. She says, I'm going to go back to Phoenix and get myself out of this mess. And he tries to stop her. Mm -hmm. He says, well, can we just talk like just for a little while? And I think that there's this like, no, like we had a connection. I'm going to try to talk you out of this. Right. And she decides, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go back to my room. Mm-hmm. At that moment, like she walks out of the frame, mm-hmm. out of the room, and she's no longer the like she's no longer driving the plot. She's given up control mm-hmm. of her life to face the consequences, and then also she just made this choice that my argument is she decided to get um, to to be killed. But he he asks for her last name and catches her in her lie because of the ledger. And he goes back and he checks and he sees like, oh, yeah, and it kind of has this like sly smirk. And then he goes back into the parlor and there is a decision before even going uh, continuing on with the voyeurism. Mm -hmm. And I think that he is in I think there's a really interesting question of how much of mother is Norman in control of Mm -hmm. that he it's kind of like this idea that he may be out of control when he slips into mother, mm-hmm. but he does, he know what is going to trigger mother. Right. And so he decides to go ahead mm-hmm. and trigger mother by taking the picture down and looking through the hole. Mm. That's that. See, and that's interesting. And that's a, it's, it's a, it's a way to justify 
just Janet Lee's performance as a, a as a active character because again and we've talked about we talked about this off mic but the there's there is the question of how Hitchcock treats women in his films in the scheme of psycho i think what it does do is um it lays a foundation that we see in horror films later um not with Janet Lee but with Vera Miles of the final girl or even just like the, the 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 girl having to defeat the monster when the man has failed right but i understand when people say the argument about uh she gets punished for her crime yes. but that is an intelligent way to discuss the motivations of Marion Crane that are probably going through Janet Lee's head because we know that Hitchcock is um he worked over the assumption that the actor knows what to do. He never really like gave motivation per se. Like right. he might he might help you try to get you to the point that you need to be with the camera. Because his camera was because his camera was absolute. <laughs> but in terms of like the intricate performances, like he hated method actors. So mm. there is a sense that the actors get to dictate a lot of their own intentions. Um and within the case of Janet Lee, like that that is an interesting point that she ceases ceases having control and becomes a passive becomes passive in that moment. Yeah. So then does that ruin the character of Marion as a whole or does it um in, in your in your view? No, I don't I don't think it ruins her. I just think that it for me it is in it's pointing to a to the character of Marion Crane being used um to help paint this this theme. And it and it's almost a uh, a um uh, uh, a alternative side to Norman Bates, someone who's passive but then becomes active, whereas somebody exactly. who's active that becomes passive. So it's it's a mirror image to a degree. Right. So so I think that yeah, there's because I, I like you know if I have not seen Psycho the beginning, I have not watched Bates Motel, so I'm gonna. Oh, we'll just, talk about that. I'll treat the, so the I'll treat Psycho as its own canon, mm -hmm. and just from the information that we're given, we understand that Norman has grown up with a very domineering mother. Her, his father dies when he's five years old. Mm -hmm. His mother becomes everything in his world. Um, she's very controlling. There's definitely this idea that there's some ancestral relationship sort of thing going on. And then her mother meets some random man. Mm -hmm. We don't find out this guy's name. And Norman specifically says he could convince her to do anything. Mm -hmm. And he has grown up in this life where he has been very passive and he has been submitting to this very powerful mother. Mm -hmm. And so I think that at the same time that he dislikes the position that he's in, he also has this inherent respect for her. Mm -hmm. And then she finds this man and is persuaded to do things by him. Mm -hmm. And, that is when Norman kills them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's him taking control when this person who had power gives up that power and he loses the respect for his mother. Mm -hmm. And so that's when he kills her. And now he has these two different identities going on. Yeah. And so it, and then that is um, essentially mirrored in Marion is she's this, you know, 30 something woman who is single and wants to get married and is just kind of like living this very passive life and then decides to take control. Yeah. And then gives it up 
and the Norman kills her. The, I, I actually like that. I'm going to I'm gonna uh, feel like an idiot for trying to like suggest otherwise than that. But like then again, it's something I never thought about. I mean, this is something that I never thought about in the scheme of Psycho. And it, it does... It does add to the Norman breakdown of a char- as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess within that, we move forward, though, um, beyond that one line that triggered a whole conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is interesting. No, it's good because it is. The- these are discussions that we want to have on the show of talking about different viewpoints of, like, how do you see his cinema in terms of a modern context? And, you know, that's important as long as you can distinguish. But it is also interesting to hear how it breaks down to the character level. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Arbogast says, calls Lila Crane and says, like, I don't know what's going on at this motel, but I'm going to check it out. He goes up the stairs um, and Norma Bates stabs him, uh, falls down the stairs, and then she proceeds to butcher him. That scene was originally not shot by Hitchcock um, the first time because they uh, had shot it in a way with Arbogast going up the stairs to suggest in Hitchcock's words that you shot a bad guy going up the stairs. You didn't shoot a victim going up the stairs. Right. Yeah. He had a fever and decided to give control of the set over to his AD uh, and cinematographer. Green. Yeah. And uh, they worked off of uh, Saul Bass's um, storyboards, which were, you know, like they, they were the they were the breakdown point for the shower sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, not everything Saul Bass did was like a, a genius stroke. Right. So clearly there's a differentiation between what Saul Bass thought would be a good shot and what Hitchcock knew would be a good shot. Yes. Um, so they had to reshoot it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they do the rig with the camera, which, I, which again, it's a great scene where you have the rear projection of Marty Balsam falling down the stairs with the rig um, on the f- in the foreground of him wavering around. And it's yeah. the most unrealistic way it's to fall down so the stairs. so disorienting. Yes. And, and that's like... It's funny, like, we'll talk about the remake later on, but when you watch it in the remake, it, that's one of those few shots that, like, still looks pretty good in terms of the scheme of trying to remake Psycho, like when William H. Macy does it. Gotcha. It's, a, it's an interesting fall down the stairs. It's not as good as this one, but, you know, it, it's unfair to do that to a degree. Yes. Um, although I guess Gus Van Sant kind of opened up that can of worms when he made that movie. <laughs> um, so uh, so now uh, Arbogast is dead. Um and there's that great shot of John Gavin trying to yell for Arbogast. And then you just, it's a great shot where it pushes in on Norman and you hear the echo of Arbogast. And then you see Norman Bates turn his head as the, as the car is going down into the swamp. And it's, ah, oh, it's beautiful, man. Yes. It's fucking beautiful. Um, it's, it's the most Gothic image in the film other than exteriors of the house. And it's decided, <laughs> yeah. it's decidedly Gothic in a movie that is not, touching into the, the gothic themes which right up until this point horror is associated with gothic um or the the, the european aesthetic mm-hmm. and then you have i mean you have your suspense thrillers and stuff like that even films that hitchcock had done like shadow of a doubt but they never melded the two in a way that distinguishes it from the monster era like there's a there's a melding going on in there yeah and that already breaks the tradition of this is a horror movie now the monster movies are not are are, are are the old news. This is the new news yes. now. Um, so Marion or Lila and Sam decide that they're gonna look in the Bates Motel. We have the final moments in the Bates Motel where they're looking around. Lila's looking around the house, uh, the the Bates house, while John Gavin distracts Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which these there's some great pure cinema going on in there of her learning about the mother in various different uh props the set decoration and everything to to show like the indent in the bed is creepy that there is yeah that is some how, crazy memory foam going on right there how long has norma bates's corpse been sitting in that goddamn bed before she's finally taken down to the fruit cellar yeah uh, and then we go into norman's room which i i actually like like the 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 her looking through that and then she looks in a book and opens it up and we don't see what's in there in the remake they've put pornography in there yeah. and <laughs> Which I'm like, I don't like. I kind of get that without having to see any pictures. So, but you know, like so that's why it's that's why he's the master of suspense is because he just doesn't need to show everything. Right. He shows you what's important. Um. And then John Gavin's distraction doesn't work because he's John Gavin and he's probably boring Norman to death. Um. <laughs> that's that's mean. John Gavin passed away recently, and I'm sure he was a fine person. Yes. But uh, no. Norman goes back up to the house. Um. And he goes up the stairs while Lila goes down to the fruit cellar. Goes down into this this creepy fruit cellar. She sees a, a what looks like a woman sitting there, and turns the chair to reveal the corpse of Norman Bates, which that uh, skeleton was apparently chosen because that's the one Janet <laughs> Lee screamed at the loudest in her dressing room. <laughs> yes, because Alfred Hitchcock liked to pull pranks and scare the shit out of people on set and off set, which is um, lovely. Yeah, no, exactly. So, um, so that's the reveal, and then you cut to this. It's so you have the scream, then it cuts to the light bulb flashing through. Like it, it's a swinging light bulb that's mm-hmm. getting into the camera. Um, which oh, d- there's the story of how they didn't get the flare in the lens the first time, and so they made them go back. It's almost as if though J.J. Abrams took this to heart. And <laughs> yeah, see, I'm the opposite. I'm like, if the flare gets in the shot, we're reshooting. It. Yeah, he's <laughs> Hilton Green even says that he's just like, whenever you don't want it, whenever you don't want it, it's there. Whenever you do want it, it's nowhere to be found. <laughs> yes. Um, so then it cuts to that, and then it cuts to Lila looking, and then you hear. I think about like three to four beats of, ste- of steps going down. Yes. Before you just see Nor- Norman Bates in his mother's wig and dress. And that still shot alone of him being ready for the kill. That he just has this like he has this, this Reaper's grin ooh, on his yeah. face. Yeah. It is it is like so haunting. It's the definition of what you might have found like you know how we look at some things from the thirties and the forties that look incredibly creepy, but at the time were probably like docile or, or like or fun for people that's kind of the the feeling i get off of it it's not the exact same thing but it's yeah. just like this wide smile it's like it's like looking at architecture at like a coney island type of affair <laughs> and realizing that smile's not pleasant at all right i actually um, i actually think that i would argue very strongly that the movie's title does not work without that look i agree that I, I think that the, I agree. You, you have to title it something else. It has to be a little bit more, um, if, like mama's plot, boy. Plot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's the just, prequel you know, to Grandma's so. Boy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that that look is is phenomenal, and I, I think that it's interesting to jump forward, like to thinking about um, 
influences and stuff. And I, I won't say much more than this because it's a spoiler of a film that we're not reviewing. But um, that look on Norman's face is not dissimilar to the look on a face at the end of Sleepaway Camp. Uh, oh, oh, we could divert for a second because Angela <laughs> is the Norman Bates of Sleepaway it's, Camp. Right? Yes. Yes, and she it's, is. It's just like you have that, that cross over oh, there that for a couple different reasons. <laughs> but that, I mean, just that wide-eyed grin and just wide open mouth it's, it's safe, so it, haunting it's safe to say that only anthony perkins and felicia rose are capable of inducing terror with a look of their face yes amen like <laughs> perfectly normal faces but when they get into a mode they're there yes. <laughs> yes. um so john gavin fights norman to the ground uh and we are we are left as an audience of the time and even if you're watching this for the first time with questions yep. um you are you are you have been beaten over the head with a revelation um we cut outside the the uh the police station and <clears throat> uh a psychiatrist has talked with norman and he goes i got the whole story but i got it from I got it from mother. <laughs> He's like, but mother's been dead. And we get the exposition scene, which Stefano has the, uh, or Stefano said that uh, uh, Hitchcock had apparently said like he hated this scene because it was going to be dull and boring. And Stefano said like, I think after what we've just told the audience via that reveal, th they're going to want an explanation at the time. Yes. Now today, maybe not so much. I don't think you can do it to the same effect. I think that the actor doing it is good. I think that the scene breaks it down clinically, at least of the period. Again, we are talking about context. So like it's analysis is definitely outdated, but it still holds movie water. I guess if that makes sense, like yeah. it's a good movie explanation. Right. I think it's, I, it's a little clunky. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's probably longer than it nowadays. It's definitely longer than it needs to be. Back then, I think it's an appropriate length, but I think the only thing that saves it is the fi the actual final scene. Which we will get that. Uh, a cop comes in during that whole situation and goes, he feels a little chill. Can I give him a blanket? And like, sure, go ahead. Brings it in, and you hear mother go, thank you. And then it cuts in, and then it's this shot from the beginning of the door, ent entryway into the cell, closing in onto Norman. And the speech is like, it's sad when the mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I don't, I couldn't believe allow them to believe that I would commit murder. Um, they're probably watching me. We'll let them, I'm not even going to swat that fly. Uh, I'm going to probably lay in that speech for people on the episode so that they can hear this. Cause it's oh, a, it's, it's a wonderful scene. It really is. It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now, as I should have, years ago. He was always bad, and in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Well, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even gonna swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. And then Norman looks up, 
mother has con- taken over completely, mm-hmm. but she's going to play another fooling game with them. And then there's a there's a fade there's a crossfade between or a cr- cross dissolve between Norman and the swamp, and in the middle of it is the skull of mother, which I noticed the first time, but I didn't. I I remembered it being a lot more abrasive, but when I watch it, whenever I watched it since then, it's just a subtle thing. It's very subtle. But I think it's because the first time you watch it, you're not since you're not expecting it, it seems a little off. But then you watch it within multiple reviewings, it it feels subtle. So it shocks and terrifies you, and then as you watch it, it just it seeps into you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have that shot of the swamp, which. I was thinking about this last night when I rewatched it. Um, that shot, it's just one shot of a car being pulled up, is indicative of an entire police force going into the Ed Gein farm mm. and finding the things they find in horror. This is an image that evokes, just wait, it's going to get messier. Like within the span of, and then that one shot, is almost the like the, the 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 icing on the cake that is you think you're safe you're not safe there is horror everywhere yeah which is indicative of the moment when something like Ed Gein happens and we are introduced essentially to the concept of a serial killer mm-hmm. we don't label it right away that doesn't really come until the 70s and then within the profiling that the FBI starts doing at that time but there is this is the beginning of the end of a docile period or at least the illusion of a docile period. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the, like, you know, you're talking about the transformation from um, monster movies into horror Mm -hmm. is that in, in this is a, this is a horrific, a fantastical, like quote unquote, fantastical, horrific situation going on with people. Mm -hmm. There's no supernatural involved. Right. No, it's 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 the human thing, which that inherently changes the game for not just horror movies, but all movies to come. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because we, we, I want to bring it back to our conversation about like uh, the, the treatment of both men and women. Yeah. So in this film, arguably, is an antiquated notion of psychology and what society deems fit for the individual sexes. Right. Your roles. And within that also is what's fit psychologically. Now, this obviously antiquated notions like, you know, Marion shouldn't have to be worried about getting a man or whatever like that, you know, like or Norman, you know, should stand up to his doesn't need to, you know, kowtow to his mother. But also like there's a lot of things going on there. But again, still from the context of the time, it's groundbreaking to see that in a film addressed up front. It's the. It's the only time Hitchcock does this and it works because he does it in Marnie and it is very wrong. Hmm. Very fucking wrong. Um, even of the time. Like that's a that's a film where even of the time it was misguided. This one though hits it on the mark correctly. Yeah. We are suddenly just presented this and now we have to deal with it. Yeah. I don't feel like it, like the psycho score aside, there's no like exploitation of the situation. Like right. the score itself exploits the situation to create terror in the audience for the movie going experience. Outside of that though, you're just presented this information. It it's a pretty fascinating way to see how this film then leads into how we treat psychological thrillers going forward. Yes. Even the ones that Hitchcock does. Frenzy is full of this. 
um, and up and amped up to a degree. And I think there is a there is a thought that Hitchcock, as he gets on later in his life, is trying to break down the barrier of what he can show in cinema. And at the time that he was making the 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 most esteemed classics of his career, he wasn't allowed to show a lot. Yeah. Um, everything he does from Psycho till the end of his career, with the exception of Family Plot, is um, is is tellingly dedicated to trying to up the ante in terms of what you can show on screen. Yes. Whether or not that identifies with him as a person is for a whole other discussion. So it is amazing to know that this film then bleeds into Black Christmas and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm -hmm. in terms of how do you present a psychologically terrifying villain. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a much more direct uh, uh, sibling to Psycho in the respect that it also is influenced by Ed Gein. Yes. Albeit on a comedic level. Because if you listen to Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a comedy. And I don't disagree with him. Well, same actually with <laughs> Hitchcock and Psycho. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, he, yeah. He, he always he said it was a comedy. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's like, uh, it's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love when he says I, I, I'll find a, I'll find the clip. He has Perfect. the clip he where he's just about like making the audience. Yeah. Scream. Yeah. Yeah. I need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, But then and then you get Halloween, which I think is it borrows most from Psycho in terms of its execution. Yep. Um, And then that. Halloween then changes the game for for a new genre called slasher. I've had the argument that Psycho is not really a horror film. It is a thriller, but it has the seeds of horror. It has the seeds that then grow into horror. Watching it last night, I've realized that it's I, I had that like that that balance in me going like, can it be both? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that I, I think the only I guess the only qualm that I have with leaning on thriller over horror is that there's a, I think that there's an implied cheapening of a film if it's a horror film. And I disagree with that. I mean, horror is my favorite genre. I yeah. think that um, it's the hardest, it's, it's the most difficult genre to play in to have a movie that not only does its job of terrifying your audience, but also have a, like a solid film. I think there are less good, scary horror films than there are like exhilarating good action films or tear jerking good yeah. dramas and, you know, carry on ad nauseum. And we're, and we're learning more, more and more recently of the capabilities of it. But I mean, like, and I'm learning how to be better about identifying this and speaking about it, but I've never felt that horror was a lower genre of any kind. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's a genre that actually requires you to utilize the best parts of every genre into one setting. Well, here's why I think it's lower, or I think it's it's seen as lower. Is, yeah. is I think that horror is horror films. The horror genre is essentially about sex and about mankind's relationship with sex. And because we are a puritanical mm -hmm. uh, society, at least in Western, at least Western, when I'm talking about horror, I, I should specify Western horror. Yeah. Um, European horror is also, I mean, that's Western as well, but there's a lot of um, like the horror films out of Japan and stuff like that tend to not be as um, tied into the sexual nature as mm -hmm. the same way that a lot of Western. Um, there's a more spiritual and familial relationship to it yes in japanese cinema yeah exactly um but um i'm also working on a thesis that is 
highly controversial, but part of part of what I'm positing is that horror actually is the first feminist genre. Oh, it's that you are not wrong. <laughs> you are absolutely not wrong. Um, because because it, of the leading lady and because mm-hmm. you see females as protagonists and you see and and because of the relationship between horror and sex is those women are often objectified mm-hmm. and they are often sexualized and pursued um, but it is all in like the the victors are also therefore often female mm-hmm. i've heard this as far back as anybody trying to discuss the friday the 13th ones I, my feeling has always been if you do it correctly it is the first feminist genre there are some films that clearly don't do it um, yeah, yeah. in the slasher genre specifically um but there are a lot of films that embrace it and talk about women issues in a way that no other genre will um the I mean, the Babadook is a great ex- recent example, oh, um, but there's also um, there, there's there's a sense that I don't think you get it a lot from the monster films of the era. Um, I think that there are still a lot of leaning on the male end of it all. However, you know, you you do have films like Creature from the Black Lagoon, which do have a clear female protagonist. Yes, um, and then, but as as it has evolved, we have been able to provide a space for that type of character in a way that action films certainly don't have uh, right. more often than not. Well, I think in the, in the classic monster films and, and, and monster stories is I think that's, that to me is the clearest indication of where uh, like essentially horror equals sex mm-hmm. is you, you, vampires, werewolves, the mummy, Frankenstein, <laughs> all of these things are about either direct like sexual lust, animal instinct, reproduction, um, all of these sorts of things or the fear of God, which had also tied into the fear of sex. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I think that once that kind of started to play itself out of just this playing in the realm of just horror is sex, Mm -hmm. then out of that is, 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 is born the female as the one who is pursued and is in, um, is in control of, the access to sex and therefore they become the protagonists out of that. Yeah. And again, you know, not every film does it correctly or even, or or like, or even well enough, but there are more examples than not to suggest what you're saying. Right. But that's why I think that psycho might be a little bit of an outlier or difficult to put your finger on the connection between um, the criticisms of the way that Hitchcock treats women in his films mm-hmm. and the women in Psycho because he's playing in the horror arena and, and there is an intrinsic aspect of horror that empowers women in a way that other genres don't. And this is what he's able to do with what he knows how to do and what he's been trained um, to believe is a perfect story or a, or a solid story that is willing to, that is worthy of being told. Yep. Um, and again, with the horror genre, and I think that this also ties into Hitchcock, the best Hitchcock films combine a lot of cinema, a lot of different genres, a lot of different techniques. Um, it, it, we talk about genre mashups today. Like the truth is horror films are genre mashups almost every time because they are having to do, you have to have some humor in there to lighten the load. Mm-hmm. You have to have an emotional connection to your characters. You have to have a sense of thrill and danger, which could be applied to action. Yeah. Um, and you also have to have an ability to be terrified, which that is the predominant uh, notion of a horror film. But there are other elements in there. Like one of the best horror films to do that melding properly is Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or anything that uh, I, I would argue that the, the Sam Raimi Evil Dead flicks do it very, very well. 
Um, I mean, like now they may not like you don't necessarily hit into a romantic angle with with Ashley Williams, but you do have your comedy, your action, your thrills, your good story, your like or story worth being told and characters you like, relatability, Um, and we we've seen over the past year or two years a boom in horror that has become much more emotionally oriented, which I appreciate. Yeah. And that stems from psycho a little bit in the sense that there's a, there's a, there's a part of you that doesn't want to hate Norman by the end of this all, because you, you, you're, you're running through a roller coaster Mm -hmm. and you do feel sympathy for him. And even like, and I don't know if it's empathy, but it, there's something in Norman that you feel so sorry for and like feel terrified for him. Right. All while realizing he's committed terrible acts, but it's it's almost like the the psychologist says like, but I got the story from mother. Yeah. So you, but you're put into a dilemma of like, I'm angry at mother, but I'm not angry at Norman, or am I angry at Norman and mother, or am I you yeah. know both? So well, I think part of the reason that that is is there is this. I think there's some really brilliant script construction. Mm-hmm. going on with this film in that I, I think that there are three psychos in the film psycho. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is the idea of being psycho is indicated in exactly one way. And it is hearing voices mm. of, of positing what someone else is saying or might be saying and, and putting yourself putting your your brain space mm-hmm. in that. And mm-hmm. so the first psycho actually is Marion. Yep. Right? Oh, yeah. And and she admits as much when Norman says, "We all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you?" and she says, "Yes." Mm-hmm. So she has admitted that she too has quote-unquote gone mad. Mm-hmm. So she is our first psycho. Norman, of course, is our second psycho. But one of the things that I find a little clunky and uneven about the plot of the film is that we lose our protagonist halfway through the film mm-hmm. because there's like, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a classicist when it comes to a protagonist. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in multiple protagonists. I don't think it's possible. Your protagonist is the person who's driving the plot. The plot of this film absolutely has nothing to do with Norman Bates or Norma Bates. Mm-hmm. It is about that $40,000 and it's Marion is the protagonist. She decides to steal the $40,000 and that carries itself literally through to the end in that last shot is mm-hmm. tying back in like, oh, they found the money. Like the plot has been answered because they're they're pulling up the yeah. car from the swamp. Yeah, and the, it's there. It's 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 very similar to the murder in uh Rear Window. That is not the most important part of Rear Window. The important part of Rear Window is that James Stewart doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which believe me, last episode that was just like we we were Aaron and I are still in shock that it that it's a, even a problem in his head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um so 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 psycho inherently changes that game and allows characters of this dynamic and depth to flourish in the 70s and yes. the 80s very the, much very much in the 90s too but on that note i think that that with one of the reasons why it it has become so influential is because of what i who i think the third psycho is in psycho is the audience mm, cuz we're we're because, depraved enough to watch this <laughs> well no because uh um marion crane becomes our mother as soon as she is dead, my favorite shot of the whole film is we cut from her lying dead on the floor to the money in the newspaper on the nightstand. Mm-hmm. Is we are still concerned about 
what Marion was concerned about in her life, the same way that Norman is still super concerned about what Mother was concerned about, mm. about staying away from dirty girls and <laughs> cleaning the house and keeping the motel and everything like that, that we, we put ourselves in a position where the voice is going through our head is, well, what's going on with the money? Well, what's going to happen with this? And we are, we're positioning ourselves as that third psycho. And that creates that identification mm -hmm. with the second psycho, which is Norman. And I think that having that identifiable, um, antagonist mm -hmm. or bad person or villain or however you monster however you want to position norman's role in, in this in this plot having that be an identifiable perspective um and a human being and not like frankenstein's monster or something like that is new and i think that that is part of what starts to curve an audience's appetite for experiencing new things and being challenged in mm -hmm. that way in, in in a cinema right and there is that's that's by the way please write a paper um <laughs> okay there's a uh, uh or a book i read the book i read a marshall was always film history book um and theory book but there's uh so yeah like we said like there is it does and it, and to, to a degree within that making the, the third the third psycho the audience that then sets the standard for how we are how we then proceed to consume entertainment, specifically horror going forward, mm -hmm. because then the game is upped, 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 upped. Yep. Um, and in different psychological ways, but also just, you know, on the surface ways. Yep. Um, this film is, is a game changer for a lot of reasons. And uh, we're, we're going to, we've kind of talked a little bit about it, but I do want to, we'll bring it back around to the use of violence in the film, which we discussed with the shower scene and how, you think you saw something, but you didn't see it then moves from if that's the that's the beginning point for then something like I'm going to use Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I think Black Christmas is a little more explicit. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre does a lot with violence that you don't actually see. Mm -hmm. And then Halloween does the exact same thing. And then Friday the 13th uh, is the point where you start seeing the full on violence. Yeah, that really is where everything is violent. Right, because even Black Christmas, as explicit as it is, also mires itself in shadow. Mm -hmm. um, but Friday the Thirteenth is the moment where Sean Cunningham says, "I'm going to just take the lid off completely." Yep. Um, which you know, God bless him, because we've gotten some great films as a result of it. Right. Um, but there, and and then after that, the genie's out of the bottle. So like, Psycho is the granddaddy or the great granddaddy of slasher cinema in that sense. And it starts, and it, it all comes back to the shower scene. Yeah, like the evolution of the of the shower scene. Just nothing has ever been able to live up to that mm -hmm. because I think a lot of the films that emulate the shower scene and the danger of of being in the shower or a murder in a shower. Um, they drop all of the subtext going on in that scene. There's no um, subtle voyeurism. There's no playing with the edit and, and what you're, are you seeing what you're seeing and letting the mind, you know, 
figure it out for itself and letting the audience kind of fill in those gaps it becomes overt sexualism of like here is an actual naked body mm-hmm. and here is actual like we're going to show the penetration of the knife and we're going to show the blood and it's going to be red and we're going to right you know it's just it's in your face which the best of them being in friday the 13th the final chapter when that guy gets stabbed in the shower uh in the in the most ridiculous fashion possible <laughs> and then has his girl discover it um that, that i was rewatching that last week and that's a fun watch nice. um but um so we the use of violence in there. And I'd argue that the Arbogast murder is also incredibly violent. Um, like from the final, like just before it fades out, like she's ready to plunge it in there. Now it does cut away in the traditional fashion of the era of, of the era prior, but well, we get one stab, we get one stab and in, and Germany and has multiple stabs yeah, too. That and, was also a, play, a thing that was cut. Exactly. And the, and the slash across the face, yes. which is old, which is ultimately, abrasive enough to get your attention. Um, and I think the implication of the knife, especially in the final scene when Norman's going to attack Lila, it, it, it indicates a whole level of insanity that is associated with the violence. Mm-hmm. So like it's a, it's a uh, not to use the name of another Hitchcock film, but it's the frenzy of the situation <laughs> yeah. and the frantic nature that we, I think a lot of people associate with horror is this frantic insanity knife wielding thing that's not where the horror comes from. That's where some, that's, that's where creepy comes from. I don't know if that's where horror comes from. Um, Cause I think like, you, you know, even if you, if you watch something like um, devil's rejects or uh hostile and whatnot, like the, the creepy frantic things where they're wielding the weapons is not the scary part. The scary part is watching the person run away. Right. Um, so like the, the, but our, but our conceptions of what is, what is horror and how you make a horror film come from, some of these frantic things, but that starts with psycho even breaking the barrier of what happens when we take a knife and slash it across a guy's face or what happens when we have a guy running at a girl in a dress, wielding a knife, ready to just attack. Yep. So that breaks down that barrier. Um, and it creates a, it, it helps create the slasher subgenre. Like it's the, it's, it's the origin point. Mm-hmm. Um, the twists and the turns, especially the final reveal, um, uh, of Norman being the killer, but also killing off Marion Crane in the first four, 30 to 40 minutes of the movie, yep. which that has been utilized by other filmmakers. Like Eli Roth does it in Hostel. You have a lot of other filmmakers who accomplish that. Um, the twist itself, you know, M. Night Shyamalan's built an empire on that. Yes. Um, and, you know, and the ultimate influence of this is something like Halloween where you get the the, the combination of a lot of different ways that Hitchcock would tell a story through John Carpenter's lens to create us the, the, the first really the, the first true slasher film that it, it's the formula that gets repeated because right. even Texas Chainsaw Massacre's formula isn't necessarily like the basis for stuff. It's a shock. It, it is a shocking, it is a shocking film. Yeah. But it doesn't follow the same tropes that are then literally carbon copied. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, the other thing plot wise that has been emulated from Psycho that I, I find so interesting is that you if, if you can put yourself in the m- mindset of going into Psycho blind, mm-hmm. which I can do is fun. You <laughs> don't know what movie you're watching mm-hmm. and the movie changes halfway through. Yep. And I think that you look at something like Alien mm-hmm. does the exact same thing. 
there's a significant amount of time that happens before the chestburster scene, and all of a sudden we're watching a completely different film than we were before. You think you're watching 2001, and then all of a sudden you're watching something messed up and full of imagery. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, also, like, uh, From Dust Till Dawn does this mm. as well. I mean, that's, you know. That, now, that's just... but, but From Dust Till Dawn's problem is that the trailer gave away that twist. Right, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing is, like, you can't. But Psycho has that problem, too. Psycho has one of the worst trailers I've ever seen in my entire oh, ex- life. Oh, excuse me. This is maybe a good time to play the trailer for the audience. Please don't play that eight-minute trailer oh, for the first audience. First of all, it's six minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> Second of all, I'm going to play it. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see, perfectly harmless looking when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has as an adjunct an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking, less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale, although I don't know who's going to buy it now. In that window on the second floor, the single one in front, that's where the woman was first seen. Let's go inside. You see, even in daylight, this place still looks a bit sinister. Now, it was at the top of these stairs that the second murder took place. She came out of the door there and met the victim at the top. Of course, in a flash, there was the knife, and in no time, the victim tumbled and fell with a horrible crash. I think the bat broke immediately and hit the floor. It was, it's difficult to describe the way that the, the, the twisting of the, of the, well, I, it's, uh, I won't dwell upon it, but let, let, come upstairs. Of course, the victim, or should I say victims, hadn't any conception as to the type of people they would be confronted with in this house, especially the woman. She was the weirdest and the most, well, well let's go into her bedroom. Here's the woman's room, still beautifully preserved. And the imprint of her figure on the bed where she used to lay. I think some of her clothes are still in this wardrobe.
this was the son's room, but uh, we won't go in there because his favorite spot was the little parlor behind his office in the motel. Let's go down there. This young man, you had to feel sorry for him. After all, being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of, uh, uh, well, let's go in. Well, I suppose you'd call this his hideaway. His hobby, as you see, was taxidermy. Crow here, an owl there. Now, an important scene took place in this room. There was a private supper here. And, uh, oh, by the way, this picture has great significance because, uh, let's go along to cabin number one. I'll show you something there. Tied it up. The bathroom. Well, they've cleaned all this up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was. Well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. And I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here. Very slowly, of course, the shower was on. There was no sound. And, uh... Now, did I play it or not? I don't know. You'll have to listen to the episode. Oh my I gosh. think that trailer is fun. I hate it. Because if you've watched Psycho... Well, one, if you've watched Psycho, it's hilarious. If you watch yes. it just on its own, it doesn't reveal anything. And it is very much Hitchcock going like, fuck you, I'm not going to tell you what happens in the movie. I really just like that it doesn't show footage from the film. Because that yeah. that is the right intent. But now you can't do that today. Like if, uh, like, um, you know what I would love is if uh, I've always said this: the next Star Wars trailers need to just be a guy in a stormtrooper outfit coming out and going "fuck it," you know you're going, and then walk off the screen. Star Wars. Like, <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, or like you know, Quentin Tarantino could do that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to be like, "Hey, it's a movie about the things that I love," <laughs> and then and then leave. Um, and so, but that, but but there was a secrecy behind the film. There. And that's why I hate the trailer, because I think it gives it all away. Because um, there is no allusion to the plot of the film. Mm. It's the, the trailer is the only thing that Hitchcock was interested in, which is, I think, the, I think the, the scene of the crime, yeah. Yeah, the trailer's very charming. It's very <laughs> cheeky, and I love Hitchcock's humor. It's fun to watch. But as a trailer, as a setup for that film, I hate it for that. Because mm -hmm. I, in the same way that he didn't want audience members coming late to the theater and saying, where the hell is Vivian Lee?" 
Or uh, Janet Lee. Janet Lee, sorry. Yeah. Janet Lee. Um, Vivian Lee was um, in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and she was also in the also, Psycho Shower. No. <laughs> um, but in the same way, I, I feel like people would be going to Psycho after watching that trailer being like, well, where's the house? Where's the staircase? Where's mm. the shower? What What is all this deal with the money and the real estate? And why is she in a car? And what's with this cop? That that's not, that I think it kind of spoils the experience of the film mm. okay no that's fair that that that's fair um i mean you're wrong but it's not <laughs> no 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 like i understand what you're saying because it does talk about norman and his mother a lot it right. does so that is a that is a problem what i appreciate one is that i guess from a practical standpoint it doesn't even talk about norman even potentially being the killer it, it alludes to a mother yes at the, at the most um and then you have um uh, you, you have uh, just kind of like this crime scene breakdown of something. But I think there's also a element of it to suggest that you don't have to... Oh God, how do I say this? There's an element of when you when you watch a trailer, you're not necessarily remembering everything. Like you just know the title of the movie and maybe go see it. Yeah. Like I don't remember every trailer I see and try to identify the breakdown. So maybe I'm ignorant in that respect. But I think that it's a primer to get you excited for something regardless. Like, cause the, uh, if you're going into it blank, you have no idea what the fuck he's talking about in this house and whatnot. So yeah. for all, you know, this is another trick by the master of suspense. So therefore it's a trailer that intentionally misleads, even though it has exact moments in the film. So an audience going in, in 1960, once they finally see the house, something's going to kick into them. They may not remember exactly what he was talking about, but they're going to remember that this is a place where things are going to happen, not change, but happen. Um, and again, it might be me stretching it out because I really like this trailer, but yeah, I just, I like, again, I, I just, it thinks like for me, it, um, this is more of what I call like Hitchcock's boredom is <laughs> like, it's really interesting to, to me to see kind of when that, when that kicks in and how it kicks in. And obviously yeah. Hitchcock is very drawn to the shower scene and this, I, this dynamic between Norman and his mother and what that is all about. And so it's no surprise to me that he leans on that for the marketing, for the trailer. But I just like, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who watched the trailer and then went to go see the film. Right. And to, to know that he reshot Arbogast going up the staircase because it, was like it didn't set up what he wanted to set up the way that he wanted to set up. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about in the trailer, he literally gives away what happens. So as soon as you see Arbogast start to walk up the stairs, it's like, Oh, this must be the guy who tumbles down it and breaks his back. And I, I think like giving the punchlines away in this, in the uh, on set in the exact environment in which it happened, mm -hmm. I think, I don't know. I mean, clearly I'm wrong because the movie <laughs> was a sensation and everyone loved it and people kept coming back and people were super shocked and super surprised. Not everyone loved yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that. Audiences loved it. Uh, <laughs> um, critics can go. Yeah, but you know, I, I agree with you in that in, in that respect. I do think, however, it is a good trailer in the, in the respect of showmanship and selling oh. your product, especially within the context of not showing footage. I think that's what my... my my takeaway is that since right. it does not show actual footage and even manipulates possible footage with Vera Miles being in the shower, yes. which is a, is a good distractor. 
I think it's a so. really I think it's a trailer that distracts you really well from the actual intent of the film. Yes. Even though it does give away um important detail. Oh, by the way, this picture has great <laughs> significance because Fuck you. Let's <laughs> go into cabin number one. Yeah. Yes. I also really love that it starts off with a good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Not an evening. Yeah. Like, oh, so he's already really he's already changing the he's game. He's playing with you. I, I love, one of my favorite lines is like, I think we can go inside now because the place is up for sale. Well, I don't know who's going to buy it now. <laughs> yes. Like, stop it. What are you doing? Just like, oh, I, won't, I won't be bothered by it. You know, you, know, you know what it is? It's Hitchcock going like, gonna fuck with him here, gonna fuck with him here, you're gonna fuck with him here. <laughs> but even in the Alma, how can I fuck with him some more? <laughs> <laughs> just it, hearing about how that was made just sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, it's that would have like, been the. You're done with principal photography. You get a couple of your television folks back in, and it's just like I'm just gonna have fun. Like follow me around with the camera. People talk and... about the things they want to go back in time for. That's one of the ones I want to do yeah. because I would just. I, I mean, I don't. I, I mean, I'll pretend to be a dolly grip or whatever the fuck. I don't need to. I don't need to be involved in any significant manner. I just want to watch it. See how many takes it does. How many takes it takes to get him to be that genius on screen as a comedian. <laughs> yes. Um, and the ratings board, which this is a R-rated film. Um. It's it's it, this is around the time when the MPAA starts coming around and the Hayes Code goes out the door. So it's in a transition period, um, and the uh, the violence of it. You could show this arguably to uh, a kid, and it wouldn't be scary by the level of what we have today. I'm not saying you should, guys, because this this film's got a lot of violent imagery in it. Yeah, but. It's amazing to see what they thought was R-rated then compared to what it is now. Um, obviously, this film encourages everyone to step up their game visually, including Hitchcock himself in terms of trying to see, like, what more can I put on the screen? Mm -hmm. As I said before, some of it works, some of it doesn't work. But the it, there is an intention clearly there to up the game of what is allowed to be seen on screen. It's crazy. It's to a me game it's... we're still playing today. Yeah, yeah. But I, 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 I cannot believe that it is still rated R. No, well, I don't think that I. I guess because it was technically under the MPAA, like they're just not going to change that. They they don't change the rating once it's been. There set. are a couple of films that have that they've gone back and re-rated. Really? Yeah. Which ones? I, I would I would have to look it up, but there are a couple that, in like in hindsight, I was wondering because um, Spaceballs is still rated PG, and that movie should at least be PG thirteen, right? If yeah, not yeah. an R, but well, because because Psycho, it originally had an. M rating with the MPAA. Yeah, yeah, the M rating, yeah. Um, but yeah, but when they went back and re-rated it, when, once they got once they dropped the M, it was just like, what in this film is R? I have a theory. You know, like, I have a theory. Norman's in a dress. That's why. Ah, uh, yeah, you got it right there. That's that's what that's it is. Because because the that's the MPAA exactly. hates sex. Um, the MPAA hates uh, a lot of things. Yes, terrible. Watch this film is not yet rated. It talks about how that organization is awful, um, or at the very least misguided. Um, so, uh, but yes, it changes the, it, it, it changes a lot of what we're able to see on screen and pushes censorship boundaries. Um, and then the, like the, the final thing, though, it changes the way we watch cinema today because if you don't show up on time at the fucking Alamo, you don't get a ticket. The, the, the policy of see Psycho from the beginning on its surface is a big fuck you to the past. Inside it, though, is the, the seeds of... Cinema is an experience that must be experienced from moment one to moment end. Yep. You shouldn't be able to walk in in the middle of it. Prior to Psycho, 
well, not necessarily cycle, but prior to the normalization of it, which can be argued is at the starting point with psycho, you could walk into the theater anytime. The thing ran 24 hours. They would always have somebody on staff. You could walk into the middle of a picture and then walk out from the moment you came in, which you is could, crazy to me. It's crazy to me to think about that, like that Hitchcock actually had a concern that people would walk into this movie and say, where is Janet Lee? Mm-hmm. Because she dies at like the 45 or 50 minute mark. Mm-hmm. And then we have an And hour. then the body is gone at the hour mark. Like, yeah. it's just like, how late are people coming into a film that they're going to be wondering where she is? There is a historical, uh, there's a historical connotation to that is that like, especially during the depression, if you were able to get ten- like the money to go to a movie, you'd sit in there for the day because it could be a place to sleep. It could be a place to, or it could be an escape for an entire day. So that, and there is, there was a revolving door mentality about the theater. They had show times and like, or you could approximate when something was going to start, but you also had a bill of cartoons, short subjects, newsreels, things to fill out the program. Sometimes you had a whole other film on a double bill. Um, that's why some films that we regard as classics today, you find out they didn't do so well. It's because they were the double bill and oh. they would go pretty quick. Night of the Hunter is a great example of how a double bill fucks a movie over. Wow. Because um, the Frank Sinatra surgeon movie is way more important. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, that Showtime policy and that strict adherence to no spoilers, w- w- shit, we, that's, that dictates our internet life. Absolutely. Like, if you talk about Avengers too early, you get castrated. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I wonder if that's happened yet. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. That's an extreme example. My point yeah. being is that, like, the spoiler element, like, I mean, I like his version of it more than just these pieces of paper that are being written by the filmmakers. Like they're, they're cute and adequate, but yeah. Hitchcock has a standee of himself and uh, with a sign. And then he has a Pinkerton police right next to it <laughs> pointing out the sign. <laughs> Again, this is all newsreel footage, but still like the fact that that policy is implemented and that Paramount's willing to go with it. Yeah. Um, because and that, the movie theaters. Yeah. The exhibit exhibitors is the big one because like, there's not always a, a cohesion between the exhibitor and the the theater. And this is around the time when the whole idea of the studios owning their own theaters has already gone out the door because of a, um, anti, uh, anti-monopoly, uh, suit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, th- th- this changes the game. Now I don't know. I didn't look into it and I don't, and I'll have to find out where exactly we start getting the showtime's specificity and how we have to go in or when the policy of don't try to show up to the movie 20 minutes after it started. Uh-huh. But this is an origin point of sorts to how we dictate our movie going life. Like, okay, I've got to get to the theater at this time so that I can get here for this amount of previews and then be here sure to watch the movie from beginning to end. Like it dictated our movie going behavior. Yes, absolutely. Um, which that in itself is an innovation that, you know, the Alamo has put into practice. Like, you show up 15 minutes late, you don't get in. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's it's pretty fascinating that this film, and I think it's warranted given the film that we see. I know it's hard to believe that somebody would wonder where Janet Lee is, but the fact is, I do believe they would have been that ignorant. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, part of part of what I've landed on, too, is that even if even if someone showing up an hour late is far-fetched, what a brilliant piece of marketing. Yeah. Like just in terms of drawing an audience to this, to have this hard, fast rule. And that is on every single piece of marketing Mm -hmm. is about no one 
but no one <laughs> will be not, let in. Not, 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 not even a pregnant woman, which the press did test out the theory and yes, brought a it, pregnant woman, and they, she did not get in. Now, did every theater follow this policy? I don't know. The newsreel footage that you see on the Psycho Blu-ray only shows certain theaters that had a pre-release engagement. It's unclear to me, at least, and I'd have to check those archives that they have in there, if every theater was actually following this policy. Right. Everyone in the interview says they did. I'm sure there was one in Denver that said, fuck it. Yeah, um, that was simpler times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so anyway, we have uh, this. So the film comes out, and it's a great success audience-wise. Yes. Critically, this film got torn apart because, one, you're doing a genre that or you're you're basically creating a genre that's going to frustrate critics for years to come. Mm -hmm. But two, uh, there there was a, a a notion in Stefano's head that uh, because the critics couldn't have any pre screenings of it, that they were already pissed off going inside. Yeah, critics don't like that. Oh no, they don't. No, I know that's 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 why you see a lot of certain movies from Lionsgate get very bad reviews. Um, but um, you know, and you know, th they are also critics speaking from the context of their era, so they don't. Even not even they know of the possibilities that's of where cinema can go. It's amazing that the critical analysis of Psycho is a very much retroactive thing. Mm. Is like, are, are the 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 plaudits that it gets come years later from the critical community because they look back and examine it. Even Halloween had really good notices, like not not universal, but good notices enough by the critics of the time. I think that's a case with a lot of horror films, which it actually dictates something that we see which is appreciation years later or the cult status if you will yeah but um but horror films tend to get appreciated years down the line they, it takes a while for them to be studied and then analyzed by critics who are willing to go in with an open mind very much I, so i well, think like i mean they think there are critics that openly don't like horror films and like or 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 closed off even like yeah well i think that horror film because i mean on the surface horror films are dealing with things that are a lot more um you know visceral or unsettling um and maybe more base in in subject yeah but again when you have a good horror film it there is subtext mm -hmm. and um metaphor involved in all of those things and when sometimes it takes time for that's subjects to bleed through the surface things that are very shocking for people because some of them are ahead of their time too they, right. they may be addressing something that we haven't even thought about and we also have a, a community of horror critics who are who are expertly trained to know how to identify what is a good horror movie and a bad horror movie yep. and like any critic you know they may not hit the mark correctly or they or they hit it on the nose but also a lot of the recent horror films we've seen especially in the wake of the witch and get out you have people able to look at even other horror films and look at them at a lens that they never would have before. Like the Halloween reboot got universal acclaim, rightfully so. But I don't think if you, if I think if you had done that years before the same film in place of H2O, I don't think it would have even gotten half the attention that it did right. from a critical community. Yeah. Um, and so you, so, but this doesn't deter the film. It makes tons of money and makes Hitchcock a millionaire. Um, which yeah. then uh, secures him for life financially and gives him a freedom to do a lot of other projects until after Marnie. After Marnie, he gets uh, restricted. Um, so 
Psycho also has a legacy of its own. Yes, it does. It has some sequels, guys. There was a way to make a sequel to Psycho. And the way they did it was via the writer Tom Holland, who wrote and directed Fright Night, and the director Richard Franklin, a noted Australian director, uh, called Psycho 2. 20 um, years later. 20 years later, Norman Bates is coming 22 years later, Norman Bates is coming home. <laughs> I will be specific about this. It's 22, <laughs> as you should be. Oh, that's perfect. I'm getting it detailed. It says it on the poster. Well, Nor- Norman has a sticking point of that in Psycho 3, I think. He, he keeps correcting someone who says 20 years, like 22. 22, yeah, exactly. So Psycho 2, we get Norman out of the facility, and um, it's... It's basically him trying to reacclimate to society and uh, go on without uh, move on from his crimes, but something's stalking the house, and he thinks it's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it manages to incorporate Vera Miles back into the story, which I thought was very uh, interesting in the way they did it. Um, very much. So. Her death scenes very Holy explicit, God. but yes, uh, th- there is th- the movie is very Hitchcockian in its approach. Like Richard Franklin clearly studied Hitchcock to at least know how to, it's almost like Halloween two captures the visual aesthetic of Halloween one. Um, and and is able to trans transition over into a different director. Psycho two kind of does that. I think it does have a modernist sensibility in terms of when it was made. Right. Right. I I think psycho two is interesting to, I I liked it better than I thought I was going to Mm -hmm. the first time I saw it. Um, and it was well, because you like toasted cheese sandwiches. I just yeah, it was toasted cheese sandwiches, fantastic. <laughs> um, my friend and, and I went to uh, a screening of it, and it was that was a line where he just burst out laughing in the middle of the theater. <laughs> yeah, um, there, yeah, that, that. But anyway, but you it. were saying sorry. Oh, just yeah, I think that it's the movie it just answers the question what happens to norman bates mm-hmm. after psycho there's it's all plot there's yeah. no subtext there's no theme in the film at all it's just like it's just this happens this happens this happens this is how this person reacts to the events of psycho this is how this person reacts to the events of psycho and this is how norman deals with all of it there is a there is a tinge of regret in norman or at least like trying to process still process his regrets and guilts mm-hmm. but I don't like, like you say, it's it's not fully explored. Well, there's just nothing else going on in the film exactly. other than the plot, and yeah. it's interesting. It it is interesting to watch, um, and I like some of the things that they do with it. And it's always it's fun to see Anthony Perkins revisiting mm-hmm. Norman Bates, but in a broken way. Like he he's does not have the same characterization that he had. Like he doesn't smile the same. That that Anthony Perkins smile is to die for. He's so damn handsome and psycho. Which is consistent though with having spent that much time in an asylum. Right. So it right. It, it, it is consistent, but it also is off considering that Psycho is a film that is intended ultimately to be its own thing. Um, and then you get Psycho Three, which is directed by Perkins. Now, Perkins actually shoots this in Hitchcockian ways, but not from the psycho influence. He uses a lot of vertigo Mm -hmm. in that film. He uses a lot of different like influences from Hitchcock films that you wouldn't expect. Like there's a, there's a romantic element in the film. Yep. Um, And that is approached very much the way Hitchcock would have shot some of his like more romantic fare, like a vertigo or um, well, vertigo is not romantic, but you know what I'm talking about? Like the, just kind of like the way he works within that emotional range. Yes. Um, on a visual scale, um, it's not a bad film. It's really well directed. Yeah, it, and, a, and it reintroduces the subtext. Like yeah. there's, I mean, the opening 
line of the film is there is no God. Right. It's a, it is a very uh, cynical film as far as religion is concerned. Yes. Um, the issue with it, though, much like Psycho 2, is that it is there is a lot of plot driving into it. Yes. Um, and, and within this point, the Psycho series has a hard time juggling its mythology around um, because it's a series that shouldn't really happened it, technically. But so then we get Psycho Four: The Beginning, which you haven't seen. No. Okay. Really, I, I'm I love Mick Garris. Yeah. I uh, the stands Mick Garris. <laughs> <laughs> Nightmares <laughs> Nightmare Cinema's Mick Garris. You need to watch Nightmare Cinema, by the way. That yes. movie's fucking great. Yeah, I, I, um, I need to pick that up. Yeah, as as exemplified by my like 15 posts about it a day. <laughs> I've been rewatching it. Um, but Mick Garris does um handle it in a very he's able to balance the modern 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 element of it with like his own little flourishes. Like the things that I've seen in Mick Garris work before. He's a very talented director. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film, uh, uh, I won't spoil anything for you, but I will tell you that it is basically Norman calls into a radio station and goes through his backstory. And the inherent fear is that he has gotten a woman pregnant. And so he's afraid of it turning out like him. Gotcha. Now, is it, I read, I was reading on IMDb, is it true that they erased the events of Psycho 2 and 3 as it relates to his family and how they're playing with their mythology? Very much so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, it, 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 cool. It's, I'm happy it, with that. It, it says Psycho <laughs> 4 because that's a way you sell something, but like anytime they've retconned something, like Friday the 13th Part 6 doesn't even address Part 5. It retcons it and just jumps immediately from 4 onward. Gotcha. Um, so, so, but uh, Psycho Four: The Beginning. It was a t- it was a made for t- made for cable movie, but it is it is one of those made for cable movies of that era that is like a, a cut above the rest. Yeah. Not no pun intended. Like the film really does work as a not just a good slasher movie or as a good horror movie, but also as a good psychological familial drama. Um, and I think mick garris who has talked or or has tackled the subject before in sleepwalkers deals with the familial element in a very creative and earnest way is there inya in psycho for the beginning no the there's no inya sleepwalkers in, no okay. no no <laughs> but that's a fun moment in sleepwalkers yeah. <laughs> um uh i need to watch sleepwalkers again they've got the they've got the screen factory of it and i need to get it um but so, yeah, so Psycho for the beginning, though, like I say, it, it's the last time that Perkins does the role. Um, he dies not too long after it. Um, and um, by the way, if you want to hear Mick Garris talk about what it's like to work with uh, Perkins on that, that is a worthwhile uh, pursuit. Does uh, he go you, into it on the commentary? Well, I haven't I haven't listened to the commentary, but uh, or, um, uh, on it because I haven't gotten the Screen Factory version of it yet. OK, um, but I would always I'd always watched it on the DVD. Um, but you can uh, watch the Psycho Legacy, which is a film by um, uh, Rob Galuzzo, who goes through the entire series of Psycho films, and it is a very much a tribute to Anthony Perkins. And he interviews Mick Garris on it, and he talks about it. And also, go listen to Mick Garris's podcast. I'm sure he talks about it more than once. I, I know I've heard it multiple yep. times on the show. Yeah. Um, and I like that he brings it up because it is fun stories. Um, but, and then... A couple of years go by, or several years go by, and uh, Gus Van Sant decides to do something stupid. <laughs> he remakes Psycho. Um, now, a remake of Psycho, not a bad idea per se. You could do it. Uh, you, obviously, you're not going to be Hitchcock, so you already get that out the door. But Hitch, but Gus Van Sant decides, you hey, know what? I'm going to be a dick. What if? <laughs> what if? What if I use the exact same script 
and went through the film beat by beat by beat, but with just new actors and a couple of different shots. Um, I've checked it. It's, I mean, I've, well, I watched it back in middle or high school or something like that. I have and not seen it. I've watched it a couple times. It is not a shot for shot remake because it does a lot of different things. Like, uh, especially with, there's a lot of seven influence in it where it, like whenever he kills somebody, there's flashes of like chaotic imagery that comes out of a nine inch nails video. Okay. Um, kind of flowing through what assumed, assumedly is Norman's mind. Um, you know, th- there's different sound cues. Um, you can hear Norman Bates masturbating in this movie when he looks through the hole in the wall. Um, which I will say Vince Vaughn is not a bad Norman Bates. He's different and he's much more in approximation with Robert Block's, uh, interpretation of Norman Bates in hmm. terms of a more, because Vince Vaughn's definitely not a boy next door type. No. But he is unassuming enough. I don't think he's perfect. Um, yeah. Anne Heche is terrible in the film. Hmm. Um, uh, Viggo Mortensen and Julianne Moore, they're, they're, they're fun. They're doing their thing. William H. Macy is actually a pretty decent Arbogast. Okay. Uh, and Robert Forrester does the exposition at the end better than the original actor does because oh, nice. he's Robert Forrester, he's- star of Jackie Brown, <laughs> greatest movie of all time. Um <laughs> So, but yeah, it's a movie that's divided people. I mean, have you, you, so you've never watched it? No, I haven't seen it. I just, I, I, again, it's funny thinking about, like I heard when it was coming out and kind of what was going on with it. And even though now I know I hadn't even seen Psycho yet, I was mm-hmm. still like, what is the point of this? I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And I think that as a filmmaker now, I understand the, I find the experiment of doing it extremely fascinating of, yes. of just of saying like, our what makes a film good and what makes it a classic? Is it the shots? Like if I go in and I recreate the shots, use the exact same script, mm-hmm. is that what makes the film great? Or is there something else? Is there something that is non-tangible, whether it's the spirit of the actors or the director or whatever? Mm-hmm. And I, as a, as an experiment, I find that extremely fascinating. And I guess I feel like I don't need to see the movie to understand that it's an experiment and to know it's that most people hated it. <laughs> okay, I will encourage you to watch it because okay. um, I've been thinking about this the past couple of months because I, because um, I, I own it on Screen Factory's Blu-ray of it, which is a great Blu-ray of a film that you know not everybody would want to watch. We've we were talking very much early on in the podcast about do the things that Hitchcock does in that movie work today from a story level. We were talking about gender identity. We were talking about you know psychological intent. Yes, because he's using the script from 1960 Joseph Stefano's script and changing barely anything mm-hmm. like maybe the aesthetic details it inherently proves that there is something in the filmmaking that makes it stand out and as a classic because when using the same material in that modern context in 98 I haven't heard a review that hasn't just talked about you know the the uh, uh, visual aesthetic and how it's just too similar and stuff but inherently some of the things that happen in the film because of the script they're using don't work because of the advances in modern medical science or gender identity or gender politics. Interesting. So inherently the film doesn't work for an audience going in blank. And it certainly doesn't go well for an audience who's familiar with psycho because they're just pissed off for different reasons. (laughs) Right. But if you do separate it and you watch this as its own thing, it doesn't work because it is working off an antiquated script. Hmm. It's like 
there's some filmmakers I've noticed who use scripts from this from a strike in the 70s and try to do it today and it doesn't work yeah um like but you know what I'm like saying is that there's a there's an inherent disconnect already because the material is aged oh yeah very much so I mean I I felt that way about uh Raimi's Spider-Man and in being so 60s influenced of like the 60s Spider-Man comics, it's just like things like G, the word like, oh, G, don't fit in Tobey Maguire's mouth. It's just like he's too modern of an actor. But Marshall, that's what I remember reading in the books. I'm Sam, <laughs> I'm Sam Raimi. Hi, how you doing? Um, although it does do justice to uh, proving that Willem Dafoe is one of the greatest actors who's ever lived and will ever live. Yes. Period. Um so yeah, and watch then, Antichrist. <laughs> Antichrist. I I always say watch Shadow of a Vampire because Shadow of a Vampire has some wonderful, wonderful acting from him in that film. Um, it's a little, it's a basic choice, but it's a fun choice. Um, and Florida Project. I recently watched it. Florida Project's really good. I He's very it. heartwarming in it. Um, and then also there's Bates Motel the series, which <coughs> you have not watched. I have. No, yeah, I'm waiting for that uh, price point to hit on that complete series. So it is not necessary. However, it is so much fun if you're a Psycho fan because you want to watch how they've adjusted it. Awesome. Because it does what the Psycho remake couldn't do, which is find a way to bring a Norman Bates character into the modern era. And one of the answers is to create a timeless atmosphere while still having modern technology. Hmm. That is one part of it. Like there's in the show, like movies on the TV are older movies. But they do have cell phones. So like there's there's a disconnect. Oh nice. So it's so it doesn't bog down the time. Kind of like it follows. It's yes. Kind of like it exists in every time. Yes, it, it's everywhere and nowhere all at once. Nice. So um so now we're gonna go into the Hitchcock cameo corner really quick. All this right. is gonna be pretty quick, mainly because we've already talked about this cameo, but the cameo that Hitchcock does in this film is mm-hmm. him standing out of Marion Crane's place of work with a cowboy hat on. Yes. Now we've assumed that after he got back from Europe in To Catch a Thief, he went over to go uh, get a cowboy hat. Now, Mm. I think he might be waiting for that Texas oil man, but that Texas oil man shuns him. And so he decides, well, fuck it, I'm going to go home, takes his cowboy hat off, and then he decides, you know what, I'm not going to be depressed and lay around the house. So he immediately turns into color. Gets his two dogs and goes for a walk, walks into a bird shop, walks out as Tippy Hedren walks in in the birds. And that's how it connects. This is kind of a weak Hitchcock cameo corner, mainly because we've been talking to such an intelligent guest that this dumb shit. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Well, I'm wondering, uh, does um, Hitchcock have any cameos in other films related to real estate at all? Because he's standing right outside outside the real estate office and he kind of checks out janet lee's butt as she walks in (laughs) and so i'm wondering if maybe that character reads a newspaper article about her murder at the bates motel and then ends up buying it once uh norman is shipped off so he's but so he so right now at this moment though he's just a frequenter of this establishment yes he's familiar with the real estate office or or but then years later <laughs> She's like, oh, I think that was the girl who who used to work at the real estate. And office. I think I can now answer why he has the cowboy hat. Because at one point he went out into. Oh wait, I guess I can't. Because Trouble with Harry takes place in the East Coast. Never mind. I thought I could connect this. It doesn't work. <laughs> this may be the weakest Hitchcock cameo corner, only because we are just talking about him standing outside with a cowboy hat. It's so weird. It's very weird. <laughs> it is. It's weird, and it's like I, I think the the story about it is funny. Is that it's like, well, I. 
he wanted to be he wanted his cameo to come early so that people weren't distracted by which he was having to do it. which he was having to do increasingly as his films went on but it's just like it's funny to me that there was never the option of like I just won't do it then. <laughs> um, just like, oh, I'll just be in the background right there. Well, like, he doesn't just... do it in every one, though. That is the thing. He doesn't oh. do it in every one, but gotcha. there, but it, more often than not. I mean, I know in Rope he doesn't. The only way you get a Hitchcock cameo in Rope is that there is a neon sign that is shaped like his silhouette in the background in Rope. Gotcha. Um, it's You won't notice it unless you actually look. Uh, so it, in, in a sense, it is the best cameo <laughs> to a degree. <laughs> nice. um, but here, you know, I think next week we'll try to see like I'm, I'm I know I'm going to have you back on again for something else here because oh. I think you've been an, a, a, an incredibly enlightening, enlightening guest on this subject. And I know you were watching Torn Curtain and I think Torn Curtain more than deserves a discussion in terms of studio meddling. Yes. Um, so we'll wrap it up. Psycho and Hitchcock. Um, this is this is a film that changes the game for a lot of things. Uh, Marshall, do you have anything to add to what you've already intelligently talked about in such a way that deserves a degree? Um, <laughs> let me see. I yeah, I have a couple of notes here. Let's see. I had there's a whole thing in here about um, oh, moms and sex. Every ah. single time a mother is mentioned in the film, it's in reference to sex. Or a relationship of some kind. Because yeah. Pat Hitchcock has the Teddy called me. My mother called to see if Teddy called. But before that, like the way that she mentions her mother at first is that her mother gave her tranquilizers Elizers. for her wedding night. Pill popping's hilarious, isn't it? Especially so, in the 60s. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's just like, here, take these pills for your honeymoon, for your for your wedding night. Um, oh, God. So there's mothers and sex there. Um uh, they talk about it in the opening scene with we're going to turn mother's picture away from the wall. Send sister to the movies. Yeah, yeah. Because mother's always watching. Um, poor substitute for uh, lover. Oh, mother's person. And, um, and then also we find out that Norman positioned his own mother and her lover in bed together after he killed them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a... Um, that is another groundbreaking thing that it does in the weirdest possible way is that it... it it makes a subject like that much more mainstream. Is the word I don't know what the word is. Like you can see it in cinema now without it being a problem mm-hmm. on the uh, uh, on a base level, I guess. But like, it depends on how the director uses it. But that is a subject that you know it it it, it it's irksome. Yes, and so you and and especially with especially when you're just like films in the past talked about the edible complex, but it was so veiled in other things this is overt right this is a very on the nose thing like like i i mentioned earlier prior to this white heat is a film that is steeped in the edible complex (laughs) like that is the point of the film but um uh but yeah and that is a groundbreaking barrier because now you have other films that tackle that subject that have gone on to win the palm d'or or like the, the the sundance jury prize like it's it's not an uncommon topic to talk about in film anymore right or even in horror like you know you you see reflections of that in in red dragon and just oh yeah the domineering mother and and this incestuous or don you know just kind of that that sort of thing is right there as well. and you get that in halloween six the curse of michael myers which <laughs> does it in a very terrible way and not with mothers but with uncles oh. <laughs> um yeah, th- there's two cuts of that movie and I, both of them are problematic um uh but uh anyway yeah but yeah so that no that is a that is a solid point because then now and that influences the horror genre in a 
big way. I mean, like, heck, you could even say that Lloyd Kaufman's Mother's Day has a whole oh, film dedicated to that yes. sense of uh, domineering mother. So Exactly. Um, which is a concept that I do think is kind of fading away in terms of the modern, like, what we see today. Yes. Um, a movie like The Babadook does certainly dispel that and repositions the idea of motherhood well for yeah I, I it's it's doing it much more of an empathetic from an empathetic standpoint of, of like the horror of motherhood yes from the point of view of the mother mm -hmm. rather than how horrific it is to have a mother right no exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and again like the point of like why something like this is a classic is somebody somebody can watch it and say oh I'm gonna try a different spin on this subject that you have done yes like it's not to disrespect what you did but I'm going to try this one instead. And then we get the Babadook, which is a wonderful film. Right. Well, and it's, 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 it's the kind of the progressive, you know, social evolution of it as mm -hmm. well is that these, all of these movies dealing with what it is to be the child of a mother is inherently misogynistic in that respect. And the subject is still the mother, but it's from the point of view of the not the mother or right. the son. And the Babadook says, well, like, what have we actually heard from the mother? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, exactly. And that that it, it doesn't happen unless the ground is broken, period. Yes. Um, so um, <clears throat> the I guess the ultimate legacy of Psycho, other than everything we've just talked about is that it's still in our minds today. Absolutely. We still discuss it. I mean, Bates Motel, one of the things I love about Bates Motel is that it could encourage somebody to go watch Psycho. Mm. That is yep. one of the reasons why I'm glad it exists. Um, and I say that also for the psychos to psycho sequels as well. Like somebody may just watch that one of them out of nowhere and then just be like, well, I've got to know what the other ones look like. And you obviously have to go to psycho one. Yes. So, um, right. but, and then also if you are a fan of slasher films, this is where it starts. Yep. So, yep. um, yeah, I, I, and if you don't like showing up to sh showing up to movies early, you have Hitchcock to blame for it. So <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Yes. I implore you watch psycho. And um, there was some other stuff I was picking up on that uh, didn't completely have time to go into it. But the I think the whole with the, the t look at the title treatment mm -hmm. and the word psycho is cut in half. Mm. Right. The plot of the film is cut in half. There are mirrors all over this film. Look at all of the duplicity going on and the idea of what of two different sides of a person and mm -hmm. just like go and watch like watch the movie from that perspective and it is a lot of fun oh God, no most definitely like there is she's looking in that mirror constantly th th throughout the first 40 minutes of the film yes um and then gosh anything else you want to bring up because like i i don't want to discourage the notes that you've prepared so eloquently oh no um no i think that i mean yeah i think we touched on pretty much everything i've got here um I just, I mean, there's just so much, this is what I really liked about going back through this film is that, you know, the things that we learned in film school about it were the shower scene and cutting and like how to break the rules about the 180 degree line mm -hmm. and how to use that to disorient the viewer. Um, we talked about it with building suspense. Um, we talked about it with, um, you know, messing with convention, with killing off your main character and, you know, that sort of thing. But being able to, to jump back into it now um and really try like doing i guess trying too hard <laughs> <laughs> to read stuff into it and just like hearing a line of dialogue and saying oh well, i wonder if there's something here well let me watch it now as if there was something there and seeing if anything sticks right. it's just been a lot of fun and going back to it that i i think it's it's interesting to me to see how deep it is and how risque it is for mm -hmm. being 
what it is like when it was made yeah a film of its era yeah right and also how complex it can be and how we interpret it today yes and which is the case with a lot of hitchcock's work but i think this is also one in the scheme of horror and the scheme of gender politics and the scheme of psychological underpinnings and therefore clinic clinical analysis yeah there there is a lot to still discuss in psycho because it is an origin point for a lot of things right and and there's something like there's there's a really interesting feminist read of this film yes um in you know in terms of like what we were talking about about the gender dynamics and the Mm -hmm. aggressiveness versus passivity um but even to the point that like in like norman can't do anything unless he goes and puts on the guise of the powerful female in his life Mm -hmm. and there that's a pretty progressive like feminist perspective to have and yeah. and there's the negative side of that was like to say well that's it's a homicidal maniac is the yeah the role that he's putting and on. again then that's what i was like alluding to earlier is like oh ultimately like on the surface that's what it appears to be but then you, you dig deeper you can find that and again anybody can have their opinion about it mm-hmm. but that is an interesting facet to look at psycho in terms of that 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 angle is unique Yes. And I appreciate you coming on this show to talk about it. Oh, because yeah. <laughs> I, I don't well, know. I, I don't think the hobo that I met on the street yesterday would have been as eloquent as you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Who knows? <laughs> so, Marshall, do you have anything you want to plug before uh, we wrap this up? Like anything for your work or anything like that? Um, Let's see. I am. Uh, hopefully, by the time this has come out, I have started my YouTube channel, um, which is just going to be my name, Marshall Rosales. Um. And uh, I own and operate a video production company. And so my YouTube channel is just going to kind of be documenting my process of what that is like and uh, things that I've learned, stuff that I struggle with. Um, An educational tool, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like the... I, the way I feel about it is I don't feel comfortable positioning myself as an expert on anything, but <laughs> I, I think... Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> I started a Hitchcock podcast. <laughs> So yeah, so it's it's not really like a like here are five tips to make better movies or anything like that. It's just kind of more of like here's kind of what I deal with and here's what I struggle with, both like mental health wise in that arena, um, mm-hmm. as well as technically and things like that. I'm going to be having interviews with other creatives that um, talk to them about what they're doing and their struggles and that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that will be out by the time this is out. Perfect, wonderful. Yeah. I encourage you all to check that out by the time this comes out, which. The second episode should be dropping this when we're recording this. So two weeks from now, we'll probably have that um, or this episode up online. Perfect. Um, I want to thank you for coming once again. It's a pleasure talking with you about this. Thanks for um, having me. This was and, a lot of fun. Yeah, no. And I and like I said, we need you back for Torn Curtain because it is a discussion that does have to happen. Um, so I'm going to wrap this all up for us, guys. Um, you've just been listening to the Shamley Silhouette episode three, the revelations in Norma Bates's fruit cellar. Um, you can... Uh, you can listen to the Shamley Silhouette only on realnerdspodcast.com and the Real Nerds Podcast at feed, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Google Play, and now iHeartRadio. Um, can, you can read the articles that come out around the same time as the podcast twice a month. Um, the last article was about Rear Window. Uh, this article, no doubt, will be about the influence of Psycho. Um, again, the, the conversation I've been learning has been dictating a little bit of how, how the articles can go. Cause I, cause then it's fun to just talk about it only from one perspective, but then the podcast gets the double perspective. So like there's, there's an open-endedness to it. Also the articles sometimes feel like a blog, um, <laughs> um, uh, which is why I get introspective in them. Um, but, and they say, like I say, we're going to have episodes coming out twice a week along with twice a week articles. 
the next episode, I believe we're going to have another real nerd in the house. We're going to have Henry Jarvis and we're going to talk about rope. And that should be fun because that is about experimental Hitchcock. And if there's one experimental person I know in my life, it's Henry Jarvis. Uh, so um, until then uh, and until next time, good night. Good night.